Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and for the last time, this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the first, to the inaugural, in fact, uh, Citymetric Podcast, where it's going to be like reading Citymetric, only you don't have to stare at a screen and you can walk around without bumping into things. Uh, I'm John Elledge. I'm joined here by my colleague Barbara Speed. Hello. Hello. Um, and this week we are... That, as you can probably tell, was the introduction to the very first episode way back in... Uh, well, it came out in February, but I think we recorded that in January 2016. My own life was pretty different at that point in a number of ways. I lived somewhere else with someone else. My dad was still alive. I still had a staff job at the New Statesman. And the world was, was in a very different state too. That was two general elections ago. That was before Brexit. David Cameron was Prime Minister. That's before Donald Trump. That was before, way before COVID-19. And this guy, Boris Johnson, was still Mayor of London. It's really, it's really going back a bit, that. And 149 episodes later, here we are. The final episode. This is the final episode of Skylines. <sighs> Funny how things work out, isn't it? Anyway, before we before we dive into to the last episode, uh, I'll get on to what we're going to talk about in that episode in a minute. But before we dive in, I'm going to ask you a favour. You have let me talk at you about some random nonsense every couple of weeks for, for quite a long time now. So I can probably assume you're not entirely averse to the sound of my voice. At some point, probably quite soon, I am going to start a new podcast. And when I do, I would love for you to listen to that. So, I have set up a mailing list so that you can register your interest. Just go to tinyletter.com slash John Elledge, J-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-D-G-E, and you can sign up. And I promise I will not spam you unnecessarily. But it does mean that when I finally get around to launching this mysterious new podcast, you will be the first to know. Anyway, enough of podcasts yet to come. Let's let's get this one done first. I've never really been shy of self-indulgence on this show, but, you know, we are really, really going to go for it this time. On this episode, I'm going to speak to a whole range of different people who've been involved in Skylines. 
past co-hosts, guests, producers, and asked them what they enjoyed about it and what they wish we'd done more of. None of these interviews individually are that long. I think the longest is about 15 minutes. But because there's quite a few of them, that means this is really a bumper last episode. As I record this, I literally don't know how long the thing you've just downloaded into your podcast feed is, but I know that it's it's pretty long. So someone I should probably thank at this point is my long-suffering producer, Nick Hilton. He's been far more supportive of the idea of going out of a bang, even though it meant more work for him personally than I had any right to expect. And I really appreciate that. While I'm doing thanks, I should probably also thank my equally long-suffering partner, Agnes, who helped shape this final episode. More than that, towards the end, you can actually hear her helping out more directly by interviewing me about my feelings about the whole thing. So thank you to you too. Lastly, I should say to avoid disappointment, there is one person who is sadly missing from the interviewees this episode. My one-time co-host and frequent guest, Stephanie Boland. Steph has just started a very exciting, very important new job, which means that she couldn't she couldn't record an interview right now. You know, that's a shame because she was a huge part of the show and also she was someone I really, really enjoyed working with. But she did very kindly agree to let me include something from the archives. That's after the credits. So if you keep listening after the final theme music is played, that's there as a sort of Easter egg. So it's nice to get Steph's voice on here, even even if I couldn't speak to her now. I did say there's a lot here. There are nine or ten interviews in best city metric tradition. It does depend how you count. Plus, we've got some clips from listeners who were kind enough to tell me what they thought of the show. So we've got a lot to get through. So Skylines, episode 150, The Last Hurrah. Let's take it away. Hello, my name is Barbara Speed and I was a staff writer for City Metric for about two years from, I think, 2013 onwards and also was an early co-host of the Skylines podcast and I've popped back a couple of times since then but I now work at the Eye newspaper as the opinion editor there. Here you've gone on to have a, a ridiculously successful, intimidatingly successful, really, career. Like you were managing editor of a newspaper at like 26 or something, weren't you? It was just like <laughs> I think it was 27. Also, I was active managing it, so it was a very crucial uh, clarification, um, especially if you're <laughs> trying not to do the really, really hard things. But no, yeah, it's fine. It's quite fast-paced, a daily newspaper. Less, I get to do much less niche things like I got to do at City Metric. So that's a ongoing sadness. Uh, obviously, I would like to make clear I'm in no way intimidated by, by your, your youthful success. Um, <laughs> so you were the co-host on the first, I think, 14 episodes, which was which was lovely. And, you know, as with so much about City Metric, you're kind of crucial in helping set the, the tone and the sort of parameters of what it was what it was going to be. And, and, you know, along the way, you got to talk about some fairly some fairly esoteric subjects. Is there, is there any subject in particular you'd like to have discussed more in some way? Well, there's one subject which I could speak about forever, but which sadly there's not a huge market for doing, which is Greg's, the High Street Bakery chain, which I wrote a piece for City Metric um, about, and I think 2015, where I, I had found this kind of map of all of the Greg's chains in the UK, of which at the time I think they were 1,650. There are now over 2,000, um, which raised questions for me and my Twitter following, who I guess were self-selecting Greg's fans as well. Um, so I kind of harassed the poor Greg's press office, who probably had no idea why I wanted to know the answer to these questions about things like why there was only one in Northern Ireland, why there weren't any in Devon and Cornwall, which probably, as you suspect, is because they already have pasties that they like and they're not very interested in Greg's pasties. 
And so, yeah, from there, I've maintained an ongoing interest, again, still to the kind of perplexity of the Greg's press office, who probably think I need to chill out a bit. Um, And then in my new workplace, I did an experiment where I ate Greg's for a whole week in uh, (laughs) September 2017. What did that that do to your skin? Well, unfortunately, it was a new campaign they were doing, which was kind of like healthier foods. So it was like sandwiches and salads and stuff. I think they were trying to rebrand as a kind of prep equivalent and so they gave me this list this dietitian obviously didn't really want me to get really ill from eating Greg's because that would have been bad for their (laughs) PR so I was given a list of these kind of newfangled products they were doing which was all fine so I kind of felt fine by the end of the week but then I was like this is stupid if if given the choice I would have obviously eaten chicken bakes every single day um like so why why did you get so into I mean, why Greg's? Why, why, why this obsession? So I think I've always had this real affection for chains. I don't know if it's because I lived in the States for six years, so from the ages of five to 11. So I always had this kind of nostalgia, I guess you'd call it, for Britishness, because I didn't live there and I felt quite distanced from it. But And I was quite young when I left, so I didn't really know what I was missing. But I think maybe because I was a child when I left, this kind of like corporate, high street chain version of Britishness is something that really sort of latched on in my brain I don't know like I love Pizza Express I love Greg's I really like the kind of shop where you could go in in any city in the UK and order the same thing that you always have and I like really you know I like fancy restaurants too and you know proper independent places but there's something really comforting I mean in my first job I used to go into Greg's every lunchtime and get this was a weekend job and get a a chicken bake just because it was something kind of reliable among all the kind of horrible, angry customers and stressful bits of the working day. Yeah, there is there is something comforting about like I I don't mind Greg's. I think that they provide quite quite decent food at a very, a very good, (laughs) very good price. But there is something comforting about a chain like sort of Pizza Express where you know that you can go into any basically any town in, in Britain and you will find somewhere that will be decent enough. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's, it's not going to be the most amazing meal of your life, but you know it's probably also not going to be a disaster and it won't break the bank. And that's kind of, that's a useful service, I think. Yeah, and you know, you know what you're getting. And I think that also in times of kind of stress or even times like this, I guess you could say, uh, people do kind of turn back. I think it's interesting that in the food shops near me, at least, the supermarkets have these queues out the door. But then the slightly more kind of off brand shops or corner shops who are perfectly fine. People aren't going in there as much. And I think there is something about brands that we do gravitate towards them when we're not sure or when we're kind of stressed or harassed. And I think Greg's really fills that role for lots of people just wandering high streets, just wanting something kind of nice and filling they can hold in their hands while they're walking around. So that 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 piece you wrote up as it, we get it headline along the lines of you know here's everything we learned from this map of every Greg's in Britain or something. It was that kind of format. It did quite well. Like a lot of people, a lot of people clicked on it to the point where like it was something I kind of re-promoted every year or so because it was a sort of fairly reliable traffic generator. I mean, was that was that a surprise to you to find that this wasn't just your obsession and a lot of other people were also interested in, in maps of Greg's? <laughs> well, I guess I did it in the first place because people responded on Twitter to the map that I tweeted, but I probably didn't think there was much of an audience beyond that. And I think at the beginning it had some kind of disclaimer, which is like, no, this really is just about Greg's. So if you're not interested in Greg's, you should stop reading because there's not like a hidden, a hidden message or anything in here. Although having said that, I do think, again, 
because it's so ubiquitous and because it's everywhere. I mean, 2000 chains in the country is a lot. It's more than Starbucks. It's more than McDonald's. It's more than a lot of the brands we think of as defining, you know, the British high street and British life. Just because it is everywhere and it's this kind of unifying experience, you can learn things, I think, about the country and people's habits and, you know, where the different Gregs are, uh, the different cities where it's taken off the most. So, I mean, I think there are still the most branches in Glasgow and Manchester, and that, that tells you a bit about, you know, life in those in those places and the fact that they can sustain like 10 Greggs within a few streets radius of each other. And also, I think the way that the company sort of developed. So I'd say that the healthy rebrand that I tried out for a week probably didn't seem like it was a massive success. They still do have a lot of those products in the shops, but the, the huge change they've had in the past few years is the massive success of their vegan food. And these sort of sassy PR campaigns, because I think what they possibly realise is, yes, people are going vegan. They don't necessarily want healthy stuff marketed to them. What they want is vegan junk food, <laughs> which is probably not terrible for you. But the vegan sausage roll and the vegan steak bake have been a huge coup. And until this lockdown happened, they were in like a very strong financial position. They do somehow get it right with consumers, I think. And I don't know if that's partly just their PR or the they do have this quite good brand recognition. But yeah, I wonder if that's why people are interested in the map of Craig's, even though we didn't think they would be. Yeah, there was a lot of excitement in the New Statesman office the week the, uh, the, the vegan steak bake was launched, which was long after you'd left the, left the company. Right? But people, people just kind of really like kind of, you know, cheap, hot, filling food, I think. There are a few questions I'm kind of asking, asking everyone on this episode. So just to wrap up, what's your favourite city? So I would say that my favourite city, speaking as an ex-City Metric employee, is Shanghai, where I lived for, I'd say lived, I was there for about 10 weeks before my third year of university, so I was doing an internship there. And it's just a really fascinating place because it's, it's a lot a lot like other cities actually is there's two sides of the river and one side is where the kind of historic stuff is and the other they literally built a bunch of skyscrapers within about the past 20 years so if you look at like photos of the skyline they literally all of these buildings suddenly just appear and so I think it's a really interesting place to look around and to kind of get how cities work that it, it went from being it's been around for a really long time but you kind of had the sort of western occupation you then had this massive growth of kind of new money and it's now a real financial center china and then you've got all the kind of contradictions of being in this super communist country but it's the most capitalist place you can possibly imagine this city like everyone is it looks like everyone you see is wearing brand new clothes obviously that's not the case if you're kind of in the less well-off areas but if you're in the kind of heart of the city it's the most kind of shiny vibrant place and that doesn't mean obviously there's tons of problems there but I think in terms of just being a fascinating place to be and to look at I think that would be my top pick okay cool we d- um actually in a very early episode of the podcast in episode five I think we talked about China so if, if, if anyone's interested in hearing you talk more about Shanghai they can they can go back to that what do you think is the most overrated city so again a tough one especially because I actually just really like going to all cities so it's hard to uh to dump on a on a particular one but I think I would probably say I think Paris is a bit overrated as a city, uh, partly because of all the kind of measures that have kept it very small and kept it very kind of limited. And I do really like going there. But I think there's there is a slight feeling. It doesn't feel like kind of one of the world's great cities in the modern way that we talk about now, which probably makes it much nicer for people to actually live there. But I think it just doesn't have that feeling as much kind of going on. Okay, you're not the only person who said Paris, which is you know I interesting. I really I really like Paris, but we we also did an episode on 
en France with two French journalists well they spent the whole thing laying into Paris so <laughs> um, <laughs> well yeah that's the thing everyone else in France helps Paris yeah. hates Paris as well yeah. so. okay final question what is your favourite thing or fact about the tube so my favourite bit of coverage you could call it very very loosely of the tube that i did while at Symptometric was trying to figure out which is the hottest tube line which i think is something that we all feel like we know anecdotally but i managed to get hold of what seemed like some fairly reputable data on this which showed that it is in fact the central line as anybody who's been on the central line could tell you with i think the northern line coming in at second for my commute now i go on the circle and district line which is rubbish in all sorts of other ways but is much better because it can have air conditioning and it it has high kind of higher ceilings to the tubes and stuff but so yeah my best fact is the central line is the hottest do not go there in the summer if you can possibly avoid it okay well at the moment i think we'd all be grateful for a world in which it is possible to go on <laughs> yeah. the tube so anyway. stuffed on a boiling hot busy tube it's uh, <laughs> all of our dream now indeed barbara metric wouldn't have been the same without you thank you very much for coming back for our last episode thanks john I am Royfield Brown. I produce a number of podcasts because that's the only thing I'm really good for. I do a thing called Dum De Dum, which is an artist fan podcast. I do a thing called Map Corner, the things that made England, how Jamaica conquered the world, 10 American presidents, intelligent speech. And then occasionally I'm a gun for hire for other people, too. And uh, I mean, Skylines was sort of, in some ways, your idea, wasn't it? I was, I was vaguely thinking about doing a podcast, but you're the one who came to me and said, you know, there's a gap in the market here. Here's how you do it. And basically uh, lit a fire under my backside. <laughs> well, I am a proud son of Birmingham and I was read, I was doing some research about Birmingham on the interweb and I bumped into City Metric. There was an article somewhere about Birmingham and the fact that the government had shafted it in the 50s and the 60s and, and destroyed the place. I didn't know that City Metric existed before that. And I wanted to write an article about my hometown. So I contacted you. We had a conversation. You, I believe, had listened, subsequent to that, listened to one of my podcasts, 10 American Presidents. And then we had a bit of a chat the next day about podcasts. And I said, you want to do this city metric thing as a podcast? Because I, I was a little bit inspired, though I don't didn't listen to it then. But one of my first podcasting experiences was listening to the Urbanist podcast. And I didn't even know that urbanism was a thing until I bumped into that podcast. I've always been in love with cities because I love geography, but I love urban human geography i'm not interested in mountains and streams and things like that really i love concrete and tarmac and culture human culture so when i bumped into the urbanist i thought bloody hell this is transporting me all around the world then i spoke to you and you were kind of doing this thing but on a blog and i thought the dude's missing out a trick here so yeah i think that's kind of how skylines was born yeah and 150 episodes later here we here we are winding it down so uh, four and a half fun years so thank you very much for that but that does leave open a question which is uh what do you what do you think we should have talked about on this on the show that we never got around to mm, for me i'm i was less interested in listening to specifically mayors talk about elections that's just that's just me I would have more liked the understanding of 
how cities work throughout the world. That, to me, is, is utterly fascinating. You had a bloke on whose name I completely forget, and I know you won't be able to remember because you've had about 150-odd uh, men and women on your show, who had got a book out, and he was talking specifically how cities are this organism, a, a superorganism, and how inequality can be levelled out and how the minutiae of our actions have this ripple effect. And I just, and I always find those types of things endlessly fascinating, you know, to look at the city uh, as an organism and, and also and how the city, so I wish you'd done a little bit more on this and how cities really, and you did do a bit on this to be fair, but how cities arguably are the 21st century's default position of governance. I'm really, I'm really up for that type of talk, you know, and how the nation state is just a, an accident of a, a recent history type of thing. So, so yeah, um, more more of that type of stuff. I, I would have been well up for, sir. Yeah, there is a, there is sort of a theory that if you kind of look at the whole sort of sweep of human history rather than just the last couple of centuries, the sort of natural units of government are, are basically empires and cities. Mm. And the nation state is this kind of thing that's only really happened in the last couple of hundred years. And we now talk about it as if it's the natural unit of governance. But actually, it's a relatively, relatively recent position. So who knows? Maybe yeah. that's maybe that's where we're going to go, go back to in future. OK, let's let's flip that around. What do you what do we do that you are particularly interested? what do we do well whenever you took me out of the uk i was always up for that and and dare i say out of london mm, yeah so anything out of london and anything out of the uk i was really up for you know i discovered the center for cities through your podcast so i've got to thank you for that which somewhat flies in the face of what I've said before in terms of uh, not really wanting to delve into the, the weeds of politics, British politics and the cities. But I do find their output really quite fascinating. But also, yeah, your your podcast series was incredibly idiosyncratic. And dare I say, it was very much you, you know, you going on your walks and just like chatting to people and, you know, walks through London, etc. Your love of uh, trains and, and like and, you know, and metro systems, you know, the tube, etc. So I enjoyed the quirkiness of it. And you didn't really know from one episode to the next what you were kind of going to get. And I applaud you for that. I mean, it was kind of, to an extent, a nice little tool for me to kind of do all the stuff I would have been interested in doing anyway. I mean, I did, like, spend a day last autumn just walking the length of Epping Forest with a guy I used to work with called Luke Turner, who now runs mm -hmm. called The Quietest. And to an extent, that was kind of a... It was almost just a little holiday, wasn't it? Just like, I was just spend a day going for a walk and then, and then tell them it's work because I'm doing a podcast. Mm. And that was kind of a sort of neat trick I managed to pull, really. It was slightly cheeky of me. But yeah, it, it did mean that the, the show itself could be a, a little bit all over the place. That sometimes we'll be talking about like <clears throat> elections or sometimes there'll be the kind of big theoretical conversations about the workings of cities and sometimes it's just an argument to, about trains, really quintessentially what you produced was a podcast you know you you weren't hide bound by a specific length that you had to you know, get it specifically down to for your broadcaster and what you didn't have was uh, an editor or a producer on top of you saying specifically you need to stick to these guidelines you could kind of within the wide remit of discussing urbanism you could kind of do whatever you want and you kind of did and so there i say that's the essence of a podcast yeah it was kind of a neat trick to be honest with city metric as a whole as well it's like if it's just a a, a site about cities well almost any 
form of human life happens in cities. You can kind of get away with talking about whatever, whatever you think is interesting, as long as you kind of come back to to a few core topics. It's kind of quite a, sort of mm. a nicely flexible, flexible beat. And um, just before I kind of do this sort of standard, uh, standardised quickfire questions, one other thing is back when you were producing those early episodes, you're also the mm. guy who put our theme tune together, which we've never I really did. talked about. And I think, as far as I as I understand it, it was some uh, some music that was available under Creative Commons with some with some city sort of sound effects over the top. Is that is that about how you describe it? It was more than that. It was masterfully and elegantly put together. John. Of course, it of course. Was, uh, it, it was a, a thing of uh, of audio genius. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, I must admit, I do I do less of them now. But there was a period. So I started podcasting in twenty twelve. And I think we started doing this in either 2015 or 16, maybe 2016. And in that time, I did a lot of kind of theme tunes for other podcasts and, and also for my own. And I do so many. So I forget where I actually get the music from. But it would have been some Creative Commons bit of music. And then the trick is, if you go on to, go on to YouTube, you can get any sound effect you want. The BBC also have a great sound effect library, which I always forget about. So, so it's one place to go. But if you just type in somebody walking in a street sound effect FX into YouTube, you get it or street noise. And then I got the sound of somebody, the sound of somebody doing the announcements of the New York metro system. That's on YouTube, you know, the the London subway that's on YouTube. So I, I grabbed all the bits of audio from YouTube. Can't believe you got both of those wrong. It's the New York subway and the London underground. Come on. You know you're, what? You're going to get letters. This is Skylines, man. Come on. <laughs> John, that was deliberately done just to make sure that you were paying attention. Okay, okay. <laughs> Lastly, let's do some, uh, some quickfire questions. What's your favourite city? The one that completely and utterly blew my skirt up was, was Istanbul. I've been there twice. I went for the first time in the mid-90s, I think 1996. And it's just the scale of the place. It's about 20 million people that live in Istanbul. It makes, the Bosporus makes the Thames look like a puddle. It's just so big. I'm a total history nerd as well as a kind of an urbanist. And the fact that I'm going to the Hagia Sophia and that church has been around for 1,500 years and it's still used as a place of religious observance there still were the roman walls you had a whole melange of people i remember going to the russian district and there's russian prostitutes hanging around i've never seen so many feral dogs and cats i went to besiktas and all of a sudden i was in some incredibly upscale western european neighborhood you turn around a corner and there were victorian cobbles with the second oldest tram system in the world it just istanbul was just amazing and then you have the grand bazaar so if you want to have a full urbanist experience and it, it sounds somewhat trite to say that it's east meets west but it's east meets west it's the mediterranean meets europe it's the balkans it's, it's just everything so istanbul in terms of just scale and just feeling like you've arrived somewhere i challenge anyone to have a a more visceral experience than going to Istanbul. Okay, other end of the scale, what do you think is the most overrated city? I don't want to get emails from the embassy or the consulate of, of this country for this, but speaking just personally, the most overrated city that I went to was Reykjavik. And I'm going to, loads of caveats here. This was about 18, 19 years ago. 
And at the time, Reykjavik was being talked about as Europe's coolest capital. I remember at the time, Damon Albarn had bought a bar there and, and whatever. To be fair to Reykjavik and to be fair to Iceland, the hype was not deserved. Go to Iceland because it's beautiful. It has this uh, eerie landscape and the people there are utterly lovely. But as an urban experience, you wouldn't go to Reykjavik. So it was overrated considering what my expectations were and the way it was written about. I'm not saying that it's not a great place. And I have been back subsequently since, but it's not a city. It's a town, a large town full of lovely people. But it was touted as this super cool, hip place to go. And it was not an honour that it wore uh, correctly <laughs> at all. It was. It just was not. However, it's a lovely place. Yeah, looking it up while we're talking, I can see the population is about 130,000, which is, that's like Cambridge or something. That's not a proper city. That's that's tiny. So, yeah. You're yeah. not a city, Reykjavik. You're lying to yourselves. Okay, last, <laughs> last question. Favourite thing or fact about the tube? You know what? This is the hardest thing which uh, you, you sent to me. I don't love the tube the way that you do. I like the tube, don't get me wrong. And I've got nothing incredibly individual, clever, quirky, thought-provoking to say about it other than I came back. So I spent half my year in California and we have in the Bay Area, which is San Francisco, Oakland and Berkeley primarily, we have the BART system, the Bay Area Rapid Transport system which is our equivalent to the tube and it's much smaller and it was and it was created in this early 70s i think it was dug it beggars belief as to how bad the graphic representation of the bart actually is compared to the tube system and it's not an extensive system at all but just coming back as i did five weeks ago back to london Got off the plane at Heathrow just as the coronas were, were getting crazy. And I got off the Paddington Express at Paddington and looked at the map of the tube. And I took great comfort is as to how clear it was, how well designed. And it was just an isolated section because it was just the um, Hammersmith and City and I think Circle. And don't get me wrong, I agree with you that there has been bloat with the map of the of the underground and things are not as clear as they could be but compared to the system that i look at every day the bay area rapid transport in california i felt comforted i felt like i was home and it's much better in terms of an aesthetic but also as a tool to navigate yourself around a metropolitan area short version is the map basically you like the map yeah i did feel like i was back home well, that's that's a great note to end this. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Royfield, for giving us the, giving the world skylines. We wouldn't be here without you. <laughs> uh, thank you for giving me the the opportunity to produce the first few episodes and giving me a platform every now and then when I had something to hawk, i.e., Commonwealth Voices, etc. It's much appreciated. And uh, best of luck in in all of your future endeavours, sir. Cheers, man. Let's speak to you soon. Uh, my name is Patrick McGuire. I'm political editor. Jesus. I'm a correspondent. 
Oh, I'm correspond- keeping that in. Political correspondent of the New Statesman. Sorry, I don't know where that came. It's not even a, it's not even a Freudian slip because that isn't my ultimate ambition in life. But I won't share that with your listeners. And I'll have to I have to buy my memoirs to find out what that is. I'm political correspondent of the New Statesman, and I suppose we could also say I'm your I'm your son. I mean, that's I don't I can't remember where that joke came from, but I mean it's just because like you know we're 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 of similar stature. We've both got a lot of hair, but I'm I'm quite a lot older than you. Well, it was one. Of, it was one of the um, long-time listeners might remember that in 2017 I was very wet behind the ears, just out of university, interning at the New Statesman as part of the Anthony Howard Award for Young Journalists, and John got me on the podcast. And one day I wore a burgundy jumper and a shirt to work. The same day you were wearing one, and Helen Lewis, late of this parish, said, "You're wearing the same thing. It's like your father and son." And uh, ever since then, um, you've been my real dad. Yeah, well, that's a that's a, a horrifying insight into the eternal workings of uh, of the New Statesman, also quite quite how old I am. You kind of often sort of uh, helped me out, kind of popping on Skylines to talk about what was going on in in cities around the UK, particularly in the politics of them, but also occasionally sort of just we, we talked about like Merseyside, your your sort of home uh, conurbation, as it were. What do you want to talk about today? What do you what were your favourite things to talk about on this show? Well, it would be remiss of me, given that I am in Merseyside now, not to wang on about that a little bit more. Before lockdown, I took the prudent decision to come back and stay with my parents in Southport, in the outer reaches of the Liverpool city region. Yeah, so I always enjoy talking about that. I always enjoy talking about Joe Anderson, the directly elected mayor of Liverpool, one of Liverpool's three mayors, and that was only partly because it annoyed you so much, because I... Still yet to file a long interview with Joe Anderson, I promised, in May 2017. Yeah, so three, three years ago now, you promised me this interview that nev- never arrived. It could be, I mean, like there could be all sorts of exciting news lines in there that will be, be leading the news agenda during this global pandemic, if only you'd written it up. Well, Joe Anderson actually is leading the, is leading the news agenda in Merseyside of this pandemic, and it's an interesting study into the constitutional innovation of directly elected mayors in practice, because both Blair and Cameron thought they could revolutionise local government by giving it a face, making people more directly accountable. Obviously, part of the rejoinder to, to that localism agenda when it came to the coalition was actually the way you're changing local government financing means you're just devolving the blame to Joe Anderson in Liverpool or whoever, wherever, to Richard Soulsby in, in Leicester. Peter Soulsby, isn't it? Peter Soulsby in Leicester. A, a city it's, we've not really talked about very much in this podcast. And the largest uh, English city I've never actually been to. Right. Uh, Leicester, I've only ever... My brother goes to university in Leicester and I was in a car that dropped him off there not long ago. I'd like to yeah, I'd like to spend a bit more time there. Joe Orton, the play, playwright, famously from Leicester. Got a nice theatre there called The Curve. But yeah, no, no, no... Um, when I when I go for my exercise or go to a shop, I always look at the Echo, the Liverpool Echo, which they sell here. And the striking thing is often the the story and, and the lockdown story has been framed in terms of what Joe is doing or is not doing. And he leans into that. Like there was a great headline the other day, which was Mayor Joe, I'm going to buy th- three million face masks or Mayor Joe, I'll shut the parks if you don't wind your necks in. Literally. So, yeah, it's, it's been really interesting. I mean, what do you make of, of that argument or that sort of political theory you mentioned a moment ago that if you kind of give local government a face in the form of a mayor, there is more accountability, people will be more engaged with it. Do you think that that stacks up? It's a really interesting question. I don't think it's axiomatic that 
a face means that local government is inevitably more accountable or interesting, right? Because actually a council leader is accountable or a council cabinet member is accountable. You know, they're still on telly or they're still on the front page of the papers. What I think it does is it elevates local government in the minds of the public. So, for instance, on the news the other day, uh, Andy Preston, who is the independent mayor of Middlesbrough, obviously, you know, in practice, just the leader of the city council, albeit directly elected, he was on the news, the national news, talking about closing the parks on Teesside. Given the mayoralty has its own mandate and its own independent office, office independent from the council, I, I just sort of think we take these people more seriously and they are the titular, well, they are, they are the literal figureheads of local authorities in a way that, I don't know, the, the system is just a little bit sexier and easier to understand than, you know, leader and cabinet models, I think, anyway. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, the leader and cabinet model is... It sort of makes perfect sense if you kind of understand local government already, but there isn't a sort of instinctive grasp of what that means or how it works. So if you say the mayor, you can kind of in, instantly envision who that person is, where their mandate has come from, what they do. Obviously, though, the kind of the Liverpool, the the the, the city you're 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 not so far from right now is unusual in that at this point in history, it actually has managed to end up with is it three mayors? Yeah, so it has a Lord Mayor, you know, who the tricorn hat. Despite Jardinson's best efforts, remains solely their possession. Obviously, that rotates on a year-by-year basis. And that's a ceremonial post, right, rather than... Yeah, 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 yeah. ceremony. The first system of the city. Then you have the directly elected executive mayor of Liverpool. And then you have the metro mayor of the Liverpool city region, which includes the six boroughs of Merseyside. No, the five boroughs of Merseyside and Halton in Cheshire. And the interesting thing is Joe has been much, much more visible in this, even in, in Southport, than Steve Rotherham. And I think that illustrates two things. It illustrates, basically, that he has no power. And Rotherham, he doesn't, you mean, right? Rotherham doesn't have any... Because the Metro Mayor settlement for Merseyside is bugger all. It's transport, adult education... And planning policies, presumably, in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and and not very much else. So actually, there aren't many levers he can he can pull. And given that it's the Liverpool city region and all the executive power in Liverpool, which is obviously the uh, the economic anchor and the the centre of the the centre of the city region, then Joe is the one making all the decisions that matter to people. You know, there's an interesting contrast with Manchester where. Richard Leese and Andy Burnham. Richard Leese is one of Andy Burnham's deputy mayors as Metro Mayor, and also they do press conferences together. And, you know, Burnham has been sort of banging the health and social care drum as is his want, and also talking about a bailout for Metrolink, whereas Steve Rotherham has been, been doing stuff with um, with Andy Burnham, but uh, has been much less visible in Merseyside, I'd say, than, than, than Joe has. Which is quite interesting, and it's and it's the sort of reverse of the the um the least Burnham thing. But I wonder whether that's because Greater Manchester has a much richer and much longer tradition of genuinely quite functional cooperation among its boroughs, whereas in Merseyside historically it's not been as quite a, as happy a ship. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons um, Greater Manchester kind of got ahead of the curve on this one is because the boroughs had been used to kind of having their arguments behind closed doors 
Mm. And then presenting a united front to Westminster or Whitehall or the words it may be. And Greater Manchester has been kind of doing that for, for decades in a way. It kind of feels like the Liverpool City region, the West Midlands and West Yorkshire and all these other regions are still slightly playing catch up on that. But there's also an element of path dependency, right? Like if someone's getting a lot of press attention, they are more likely to keep getting press attention. Whatever you can say about Joe Anderson, he's quite good at sort of getting headlines around himself, isn't he? So, Yeah, you know. I'm personally surprised that Joe hasn't, you know, offered to, to, you know, attack the vaccine himself with his bare hands. But I'm sure we do that. Or, you know, Joe, actually, that's probably unfair. Joe's approach would probably be to to block the vaccine on Twitter. That's that's, that's his favourite. Remember, he told me that his favourite button in the world was the block button on Twitter. I guess, you know, every story needs a local angle, right? And if you have a pugnacious media savvy and divisive local boss because he is he is i mean in both senses of the word he is the boss both of liverpool and and its response to the pandemic then yeah obviously the story is going to be what is joe doing or not doing and uh what a story it is well i guess we'll, we'll never know for sure because because you never wrote up that interview just a couple of uh, questions i'm asking everyone what's what's your favorite city Oh, you ask, you ask a really good question. I very much like, I'm a big Belfast fan, very walkable city, framed as it is on three sides by by hills and and, and the, obviously the, the lagging on the other side. Liverpool, obviously I can't go 10 seconds without saying that. It's probably, it's between Belfast and Liverpool, obviously they're very similar cities. If I was to pick a European city, Prague, I'm that sort of unrefined lad, you know, who enjoys cheap beer, but also... Um, the exploits of Jan Hus. Good choices. What do you think is the most overrated city? Manchester. Oh, so that come sounds, on. That sounds, like a, that sounds like a sort of sectarian one too, Of course, it? that's exactly what it is. Come on. <laughs> My secret is I'm not particularly well-travelled within the UK. And most UK cities I've been to, I'm quite fond of. Like Birmingham, I could, I've, I've got a lot of time for Birmingham. I think Birmingham is weirdly underrated in that, like, it's... No, I've, kind of, I've kind of gone full circle on Birmingham and I... I used to think Birmingham was underrated because everyone just thinks it's kind of a bit a bit rubbish. And then you go there and it's mm. actually got a great city centre. There's, you know, there's loads of fantastic architecture in Birmingham. The people are incredibly friendly. It's a nice place to go. And then I had a period in my life where I had to go there a lot. And I kind of went off it quite quickly. It's it's somewhere I kind of feel like you can you can exhaust the potential of in, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think was plausible for a city that size. But I got I, I, I tired of it quite quickly. So. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. Have I ever been to a city in the UK that I genuinely didn't like? Plymouth's a bit bleak. I've been to Plymouth for two reasons. One, my cousin passed out from the Royal Navy, and two, I passed through it on the way to Robert Kilroy Silk's house. So, but I also do like about Plymouth that feeling that you are at the absolute edge of the world, and obviously the that main line hugging the coast at Dawlish is um, enough to take the breath of you know even the the hardest man away not saying i'm a hard man but you know what i mean i feel we should clarify that you're on your way to robert curry silk's house for an interview you weren't just there spending like christmas or something i wish i wish and i wish i wish i could i wish i knew how he was doing although he he lives in a a grade two grade two star listed gothic estate so i think if anyone's safe at the moment it is kilroy all right last question what is your favorite thing or fact either either is acceptable was your favorite thing or fact about the tube you ask a very good question. I've got two things. The first is, has someone's already has someone already told you that they use the the thing about using the clay to heat stuff? You know, it's so hot now that they're going to 
use the central line to heat offices. I mean, it is certainly true that the tube has been running for so long that it's heated up the ground around it. And, you know, once upon a time that you would get posters suggesting that on hot days you take the tube to cool down, which seems yeah. absurd these days. My favourite, so my other favourite thing, which also concerns the central line, is you're familiar with the the, the, the shuttered British Museum station, I assume. Oh yeah, which, uh, which was replaced by Hober, not on the uh, on the central line. They did an incredibly pulpy uh, B movie about that called um, oh, I can't remember it's called Donald Pleasance was in it. It was about a tribe of zombies, zombie cannibals, that lived at the old British Museum station. And they somehow escaped. I think they somehow escaped onto the tube. So it even inspired its own horrible slasher horror, which is, uh, you know, nothing could be more horrible than our average commute. Right, guys? Do you have a, do you have a name for this film? Oh, I think it was called Deathline or... Oh. It was from Google. I can tell you that Deathline was released in 1972 and in the United States was distributed under the title Raw Meat. So... <laughs> Donald Pleasance as a um, horrible um, tube zombie. Its plot follows two university students who find themselves at the centre of an investigation involving a man who goes missing on the London Underground. So there you go. You know, don't don't say you can't. This podcast doesn't do culture as well as as urbanism because uh, that is some you know peak British cinema. Okay, well if you're looking for if, if you're looking for a film about the tube and zombies, then uh, we recommend 1972's Deafline. Patrick, thank you very much. My pleasure. Just before we move on to our next interview, I just thought it worth noting that since we recorded that interview, Patrick has got a new job. He's not going to be the political editor of New Statesman. He's actually leaving altogether to go work at The Times, where he'll be working on Red Box every morning with Esther Webber. Patrick is a fantastic political journalist and one of the best people I work with at The New Statesman, and he's got a brilliant future ahead of him. And I just thought it was worth saying all that and thanking him for his contribution to Skylines. Anyway, now on with the show. My name's Jim Watson. I'm currently the media editor at The Guardian, and I once got John to let me dedicate an entire episode of this podcast to walking across London on the route of Crossrail and also an entirely separate one on the route of the Channel Tunnel rail link. So I can't believe that it's having to shut down after those ones. It's a, it's a great it's a great personal tragedy for, for you, I mean, not for me, obviously. Is it out of interest, do you think you're, you're, you're obviously a media expert, is there anywhere else out there that kind of does the sort of stuff Citymetric does and it's kind of approach to transport coverage? There's certainly nowhere that would, would, would indulge me to the extent that it has done. But all joking apart, what what's great about City Metric and what you've done with this in the podcast is the stuff that has just allowed a lot of people to say that they're interested in it, that has enabled people basically to go, huh, I thought I was the only person who cared about how you get around King's Cross Tube Station really fast. I thought I was the only person who cared that if you live in suburban Manchester, Things can be a total state for getting in on the bus compared to living in suburban London. If anything, it's just given a few people in Britain online the chance to indulge what was often seen as a geeky interest and shouldn't really be. Yeah, my my favourite comment I ever saw on any City Metric article was when someone quote tweeted a piece with, I was much more interested in this than I'm entirely comfortable with. Which I think sums up the ethos we were going for, really. It's like, you know, make, making people sort of discover they're interested in, the, in this stuff, even if they're a little bit awkward about it. What I'm asking everyone for these segments is, you know, 
what do you think we, we should have done that we've, we've not really done? Is there, are there any particular topics you think we should have dived into on this podcast that are missed opportunities? So I'm going to go full spiked online contrarian and say that one thing that is not really a case that's made pretty often is that Britain's transport system is, if not great, actually pretty good. And that there's a lot to build on, hopefully, in the next few years that gives me quite a lot of hope we might sort it out on a level that other countries already enjoy, but many others don't. Okay, that's that is a, a contrarian take. What, what's your argument? Because I can kind of see that in London. I think London probably has one of the best urban transport systems of any city in the world, probably. But they're not so sold on on any of our other cities, let alone rural areas. As someone who grew up in a village which had one bus a week, I get you. But when you look at what London's got right, when you look at how we've learned to mix public funding with things being run by private operators, but basically controlled by the state, decent amount of regulation, but also innovation. It works quite well. And Manchester has really got its act together with Metrolink. Obviously, the pandemic has upended everything. But the big cities in the UK are starting to get their act together. Outside of London, the prices are still way too high. And there's still not enough actual joined up thinking to say why it takes a journey in the north on a big train for one of the better what's the term john what's the term for a big train heavy rail is that what you're looking heavy for Heavy rail. thank you I, I i'm basically resorting to childlike terms a journey from york to manchester or something is extortionate for the amount of time it takes and the sort of mental closeness of the cities even if physically they're quite a way apart so that's just unjustifiable but there's a lot to build on and it wouldn't take an enormous number of billions to really make a massive difference. And we've got the expertise and a lot of the good people working in transport systems in London in particular, but also elsewhere. You've got the know-how to do this if the politicians want to turn on the spending taps. It wouldn't take an enormous number of billions. Is I mean, that's, that's still, billions is still quite a lot of money. And there's, there are other demands on the public purse right now, aren't there? I mean, how... How do you think we should persuade politicians to kind of invest more in this stuff? And what, what should they be doing? Well, I think one of the things that intrigues me is the predictions that after the pandemic is over, there's going to be an enormous uptick in people rushing to buy a car because they just won't want to be around other people. So that's going to be a challenge. But then the flip side is maybe more people will want to cycle around because they won't be hemmed in close to other people. We obviously don't quite know what world we're going to reemerge to, but. If the economy is slowing down and there is a need to help out other parts of the UK outside London even more than there was before this crisis, then spending money on rail projects, spending money on metros seems like a really good idea. As much as I don't have an awful lot of time for Leeds, the fact that it still doesn't have a tram is nuts. But we do have the know-how on how to do it. We've done this in so many big cities. We can do this. That is my sub-contrarian viewpoint is that while we're quite down on a lot of things about travel in the UK, especially the cost of it, we've of course now effectively got a nationalised railway system in almost every respect without anyone really noticing because most of the franchises are now operating under fixed contracts since the pandemic began. So we've got a lot of control and if there is the vision in government, big if, we can do this. Okay, well, that's that's a nice optimistic take. I'm not entirely sure I'm sold on it, but uh, I mean, it feels to me like given that Manchester has not yet 
put into place its, its bus franchising powers, which were meant to be sort of transformative, and those are powers it literally has. I'm not convinced that we're going to make these these great strides, but it's nice to it's nice to hear someone being being positive about British transport for once. There's a couple of, sort of standard questions I'm I'm asking everyone. It's a sort of fairly quick fire. What's your favourite city? In in the UK, I think my my favourite places are London, with which I have a love-hate relationship in that I hated it until I was about 22 and said I'd never move here. And now I struggle to imagine living anywhere else. York, which is my beautiful home city, which has all the flaws of being a a small chocolate boxy tourist trap while also having its own wonderful identity. And in terms of sort of what's possible, I do just love Glasgow. Wandering around Glasgow and the sort of sheer bulk of that city and the way it fits together in the sense that real proper stuff can happen there. I get a kick out of that every time. Yeah, well, so I, I love Glasgow as well. Something I, I adore about it is it doesn't know London exists. It's not <laughs> looking over its shoulder. It's a, it's a major world city in its own right. It doesn't give a shit about London, and that's the way it should be. What do you think the most overrated city is? I do think there's a weird thing that's happened in the last 10 years of which I've been very much an active part of people who decide that somewhere in Europe is the new buzzy place to be, you go to somewhere like Portugal and you end up eating in another generic hipsterish restaurant, which basically looks exactly like the one you'd have eaten in in London and exactly like the one in Copenhagen that you went to. And I remember sitting in one of them as uh, as the couple at the table next to ours sat sat down and went, oh yeah, we found this in the Guardian Guide as well. And I did just kind of go, right, well done everyone. We've created a sort of global class of sort of hipster-centric places to visit, which are now increasingly all the same. And we probably ought to think about what we're doing there. Okay, cool. And the, the last question, which is, I think, I think should be pretty on brand for you, is what's your favourite thing about the Tube? Or alternatively, what's your favourite fact about the Tube? There's, there's too many wonderful things about the Tube that give me delight. So I'm just going to instead say my favourite moment was when for the 150th anniversary they did the steam trains on the Tube. I wasn't spent earning very much money at, the, at that time and I spent pretty much my entire monthly budget on buying two tickets for it. And the sight as we pulled into Edgware Road Station with a full steam train and a woman on her headphones just looked up and the look of absolute shock as she was waiting for her district line train, no, it wouldn't be district line, circle line train, and just saw this steam train pull in was just delightful. So I just think the fact that it's run by people who put on things like that and actually give a damn about the history of it is really fun. I think the fact it's been going so long that Charles Dickens could have travelled by tube, that seems insane to me. It's just you don't associate those two those two time periods at all. But the tube opened seven years before he died, so maybe he did, who knows? And of course, the, the, the wonderful posters from the 1910s of go on the central line when it's hot because that'll pull you down. Yeah, maybe. That's not that's not great advice these days, is it? Anyway, Jim Waterson, thank you very much for, for spending a day walking across London with me. John, thanks for indulging me on too many occasions, and I'm sorry that that forced you to shut the podcast down. I'm Stephen Bush. I'm political editor at the New Statesman. I, I feel on the bound to tell you at this point that when I, when I did this with Patrick yesterday, he accidentally described himself as political editor and then audibly panicked and started ranting about how he has no such ambitions in that direction. So I'd, I'd, I'd keep an eye on that lad if I were you. Thank you. I will keep my eyes peeled.
Okay. And yeah, obviously you were you 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 were a fairly regular uh, guest on on Skylines. Um, one of my one of my personal favourite episodes is the one where we just had a lengthy argument about the tube, which I kind of feel is sort of the, the ultimate expression of, of of my city metric. Really, was it fun for you? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did. I, yeah, I mean it's it, it was it's interesting because it you know I learned a lot about myself. I learned that I'm correct about what constitutes a tube. But no, it's you know no, it's 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 also like you. Know, most people live in cities or indeed, well, most people live in urban areas. I suspect actually that trend will not be interrupted by the novel coronavirus. So, you know, it's, uh, it's always, always interesting and fun to appear on it. Also, it was a good bit of hygiene to force myself to check in on the Metro mayors, where one of the odd problems with them is because several of them are foregone conclusions, it's quite easy to kind of forget to go, oh, but actually, look, there's lots of quite interesting governing going on in Greater Manchester. There's lots of quite interesting governing going on in the Tees Valley, which obviously one of the fascinating things is, is that, is that Metro Mayoralty now going to start becoming a foregone conclusion? We don't know. No, well, hopefully, we'll, we won't know for some time. The, uh, the election for that was meant to be around now, in fact, but uh, it's obviously been pushed back by a year, along with all those elections. So that's yeah. kind of a, a, a nice long cliffhanger for us. When we were talking about what you might want to talk about in this last Skylines, we came up with a topic that we never, we never got around to discussing, but which I think you have quite strong views about, which is, which is the worst English city to have a party conference in? Yeah, I do have strong views about this. Now, the best is, is actually a significantly easier question. In the, the best is a kind of two-cornered fight between Liverpool and Manchester, which I think Liverpool just edges for the essential reason. And because, because of where its conference centre is, right, for me at least, the thing I, I desperately need at any party conference is when I just want to be able to talk to my friends or I just want some time on my own, is an ability to escape the immediate conference sort of surrounds, but still have a nice time and to eat well. Now, obviously, both Manchester and Liverpool have a fantastic, well, had a fantastic dining scene, and we all desperately hope, I certainly desperately hope, and I will be able to go to Lunia again after all this is over. But the brilliant thing in particular is that it's quite easy to very swiftly leave the orbit of the Echo Arena, be away from other conference goers, but still be able to eat nicely. The problem with Manchester as a conference venue is because only the Tories go there is that you A, have to like schlep quite a bit to get out of the conference surrounds. But you, I always have this lingering fear that I will be like, you know, punched by someone. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that I think it'd be fine for me to be punched by someone for being a Tory activist if I were one. I'm not into that in general. But the sort of added layer of like being punched for for reasons that are to do with mistaken identity, adds like something which shouldn't happen to anyone, is unpleasant to happen to anyone, but would also add it with an unwelcome comic air. And the Mm. last thing you want if someone punches you in the face is for it to also be slightly funny, I think, right? If someone were to punch you knowing full well you you were Stephen Bush, political editor for the New Statesman, I mean, would that that seem reasonable enough? I mean, do you want to be punched as yourself under your own identity? It's a horrible thing to happen to anyone full stop. It's just the... In an odd way, right? If, like, so let's say I, I said to you, oh, I'm a, I'm a conservative activist and I, I was, I was a, attacked at a party conference. You go, oh, God, what a horrible thing to happen to you. If I said, oh, God, I was attacked and, you know, someone was shouting at me. Uh, so someone once did heckle me under the belief that I was quasi-quateng, which 
was slightly painful because <laughs> you know you in don't a nice look anything like way, each other. That's, that's I don't look anything like. Racist. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm also there's, there's there's just a lot less of me than him to be honest. Right? And that's the thing. It's like if if I said to you, you know, I'm a conservative and I was I was punched by. Well, that's a terrible thing. That's happened. If I said to you, I was punched by someone who thought I was quasi quartet you'd both be going, oh, what a horrible thing to happen to you. But it would also be slightly funny to you. Yeah, not, not because really slightly. The, it, it would be incredibly funny and that's, to me. That's things you don't, you don't want an added note of ridiculousness layering your unpleasant experience. So for that reason, Liverpool just edges Manchester as, as the, uh, the best one. They both have all of the kind of ideal things that you want in somewhere you can escape. Good restaurants, nice art galleries you can work in. Liverpool, of course, has Tate Liverpool, which is uh, pleasingly nearby to its conference centre, as well as being a very good gallery. It has, um, I was going to say, it has some very good John Piper there. And I'm trying to think, am I thinking of a different art gallery in Liverpool? But it doesn't matter. Liverpool has great museums, it has great places you can escape to, and a great uh, dining scene. Birmingham, which is just below that tier, also has a lot of nice places you can escape to and eat at or watch a very late film in. Unfortunately, because Birmingham is like, and although actually this is, is, is happily going into reverse a bit, thanks in part to the local council, thanks in part to the Metro Mayor, but Birmingham is a city which very much still bears the scars of a kind of like motorist, motorist's first approach to development, which means that you look at a map and you're like, oh, there's somewhere nice I could eat or watch an 11 o'clock, uh, 11 o'clock showing of a film that's out two minutes walk away and you realise you're literally going to have to walk 15 minutes down the road in order to be able to cross the incredible fast moving traffic and that's just kind of annoying and pointless but once once the council and Andy Street are finished with it Birmingham Birmingham will be right up there challenging for it the race for bottom place is fiercely contended by two places beginning with B Brighton and Bournemouth right what have you got against Bournemouth Bournemouth's lovely Bournemouth is a horrible place to do a party conference. It's a horrible conference centre, but I think it's a, it's a very nice place. It doesn't have very many good restaurants. The thing is, you, you, it, does, it doesn't have very many good restaurants, and it doesn't have any good restaurants where you can escape the conference. For me, the ideal conference venue has to, has to, have, has to tick all three of the following boxes, none of which Bournemouth manages to tick. It needs to have somewhere which, if I'm feeling a bit sad one of the evenings, I can, after I've done all of my work and whatnot, just go and like watch a cinema at an Odeon or whatever, right? And there just isn't enough choice of cinema in Bournemouth. Mm. You're, you are, I don't know why I've used the example of Odeon, because you are literally just stuck with the Odeon. You want to have a, a wide variety of nice restaurants. Right? You want to be able to eat at, at a different place every evening, right? Bournemouth think, does not have enough nice restaurants for you to be able to eat somewhere nicely every evening. This is reminding me that at the last Liberal Democrat conference in Bournemouth in 2019, I spent quite some time wandering around with, with, with Chris Cook of Tortoise trying to find somewhere to eat. And we found precisely one open restaurant and we ended up eating at the next table, literally the next table from you and Patrick and Alva and co. Which does feel like a slightly telling anecdote in its way. Yeah, and also, right, that restaurant, which was all right, but was you fine. felt a bit robbed for what you paid for it, right? It was I open. I was grateful for the openness of it. Yeah, because uh, this, is, this is the thing. It's that although, obviously, eventually the money comes back into my bank account and, and goes into the... Eventually, it can be quite a long time. But also, the, 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 the most maddening thing, I think, in any uh, expense claim when you're travelling for work is if someone looks at a sum and goes, oh, you ate well, and you have to go, mm, no, actually, I didn't. 
I just think of the three restaurants within within doable distance of the conference centre, only one of them I would actually say is good for its price. It's also the one in, in a bar that's also quite crowded so you can't properly veg out. And in all of them, you have the nightmare scenario when you're like, I just want to talk to someone who I don't have to have my like professional face on. Have the nightmare scenario of like bumping into like someone who's 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 working there so yeah bournemouth that's the case against it now brighton has the obviously the overwhelming case and it is big enough for it to escape and it has a number of very good restaurants including actually one of my favorite indian restaurants of all but the problem with brighton is it's so maddening to be there in working hours because like all of the conference venues are dotted along that one stretch of pier. And so you just, you spend ages walking in order to not have to travel very far. You have that thing where at the end of the day, you're like, why have I, how have I sweated through my shirt? My pedometer says I've walked six miles, but I, I haven't managed to go beyond like that weird British Airways uppy downy thing or the Odeon on the other side and it's just it's it's just it's just a very frustrating conference logistically and you just end up having to spend a lot of time hurrying about and the inside of that conference center i think it's horrible yeah i mean it's it's like it it literally it's like an escher painting which i mean so is birmingham's conference venue but at least it's well lit and there's something kind of cheerful about it whereas brighton is one of those conference venues where even though you know in your head that you will in fact find your way out and you're not going to starve in death to death inside of it you don't really believe it there isn't particularly anywhere nice and you can get a cup of tea or something inside the conference center it's just it's just horrible it's just not a nice place to have a conference so you said that you thought bournemouth's conference center wasn't nice so i guess this is where i slightly disagree and that basically the problem with bournemouth and brighton is brighton you have great city horrible conference venue in bournemouth it's just like oh I'm going to be ripped off to eat not very well. And I'm going to have to see, like, I'm going to have to have my work face on throughout the whole, essentially for 24 hours for five days, for five days or how long the conference goes on for. But that's, the actual venue is quite nice. I mean, that's the joy of party conferences, though, isn't it? It's just nonstop work for days and you get to do it three weeks running. It's brilliant. Thank you for, for, for using this vehicle to rant about Poor conference centres you have you have known and loved. Just quickly, some very quick fire questions. Uh, what's your favourite city? London. People keep saying London. I think it's a very disappointing answer. I think people should be more original. But okay, fair enough. It's, it's the it's the correct answer though, isn't it? Like, you're, pa- you know. you're patriotic. We can say that much. Yeah. What's the most overrated city? So are we defining city as in the the However ball you handed to. out? Okay, right. So I'm going to ignore the places that are described as cities by successive british governments right it's cheating to say wells wells is not a city right if you if you took someone from rio de janeiro and went i'll take you to my nearest city and you took them to wells they'd just be like you're an idiot this is a village so i'm going to define that as solely as genuine cities or puas or pois as i think we never quite agreed to call them but i think we should have called them pois okay Um, whatever makes you happy I would say, actually, the my was it most overrated or least good poire? Most overrated. Which one do people like that you think is just rubbish? So the the most overrated poire is is Oxford, right? Oxford is gradually being ruined by a failure to build housing. Its covered market is be, is turning into a kind of like you know I came to Oxford and all I got was this terrible T-shirt. It essentially like 
all of the things which are wrong with Leicester Square are gradually being able to destroy that city because of a failure to build sufficient numbers of housing. So yeah, I think it is sadly Oxford, although there are many lovely things about it. You know, my mum lives there, there's a lot of great restaurants, nice museums. Really, that's essentially all I want is museums, bookshops and restaurants. But its city centre is gradually being hollowed out as a result of that trend. And it also has is the site of some truly horrible decisions as far as um, shopping malls are concerned. OK, great. And last, last question, last ever question for you on Skylines. Just as a special treat for me, because it is the last one, will you say out loud for the listeners, the DLR is not a tube? But it is. I could yes. no more say that than I could deny that London was the greatest city in the world. But go and on, it's, your last, it's the last chance. Go on, go on. I'm asking nicely. Fine, fine. Just because, you know, like, it's the end and you're, you know, and the moment has been prepared for, I will say that the DLR is not a tube. Excellent. Obviously, I'm going to cut that. I'm going to cut everything else. I'm just going to put that in on its own. I like the way that you got a Logopolis reference into the last, last appearance as well. Well done. Stephen Bush, thank you very much for everything. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, John. It's India, your former New Statesman colleague, who's just returned from Hong Kong to the UK. That's exciting. You've been you've been in Hong Kong for just over a year, and now now you're back. You're back with us. I'm back, and it's very very nice to be back, despite the strange strange situation. An odd, t- an odd time for it, but probably a, an odder time to be in be in Hong Kong than a lovely sort of rural bit of Devon where you're you're speaking to us from now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> something that definitely was telling me to come home <laughs> so you've been what have you been doing in hong kong you've been reporting on on uh, the climate crisis really haven't you you've been... most have been uh, editing for the newswire afp and then while i was there the the protests obviously took off so that that was a big thing well for the news covering <laughs> but was really fascinating and i think they might just there's rumblings that they're starting back up again now so we will see Oh, well, yeah, I can imagine that there's, it's, it's not really sort of compatible with social distancing, is it? The idea of sort of major, major protests. It's, it's not, but actually there's an amazing 
they managed it ever so well in Israel the other week. Did you see the photos of that where they were like in a car park all two metres spaced away from each other with masks on, but but protesting the government? It was amazing. But when when you were when you were still with the New Statesman, you were you were among other things our, our environment writer. And you, you generally, when you came on Skylines, it's to talk about green issues in some way. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> so, so what do you, what do you think is the kind of the, the, your sort of final message to the Skylines audience? Oh, well, one of the very few silver linings in the last few weeks has just been how seeing how lovely it is watching people enjoy nature in the kind of ways that they can, even if that's very limited. It almost like the limited access is seemingly making it even more precious and that's been so nice to see you at like and for me like obviously I'm super lucky being down in Devon but talking to friends a lot here in London and Edinburgh and all of us no matter where you are kind of finding just within our local like around your house kind of new new views we didn't know were there new walks new pathways watching watching the trees change and and Everyone seems to be really into learning birds' names. It's, um, I don't know how you've been finding it in your flat, though, because I know you, without having a outside space, is is really tough. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask about this. I mean, you you are you are your your family's home in 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 Devon somewhere, rather than yes. in central London, where 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 outdoor space and access to nature is at, at something of a premium. From from my window, I can't really see much nature, but I can see a railway junction. Ah, well, that's that's your version of yeah, it's your version of my trees. I think they have an equal level of love in our hearts. <laughs> but I was, I was going to say, do you think you would be having the same feelings if you were in in your your flat in South London? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, and it has been really nice talking to friends here. And I would be in London, obviously, if I hadn't just come back from Hong Kong and didn't have anywhere to live there. But it's, it's nice seeing the ways that people are kind of adapting kind of seeking out nature online a lot as well so there's so many amazing apps that are kind of sprouting up things that have been run in previous years like the city nature challenge uh, which you use the iNaturalist app for and that gets people out photographing all kinds like any kind of nature plants animals trees that they can see in like metro areas and then you, from the 28th of April to the 3rd of May, you go on and to the app and you um, can help identify species that maybe other people haven't been able to identify as well. So it's, it's very collective. And um, in previous years, it's been a kind of competition between cities. But this year, it's more just trying to get as, as much information out there as possible. Wildlife cams are booming. The National Trust Blossom Watch initiatives to get people writing nature diaries and some of it's being used for science which is really cool as well do you think this stuff will will survive the end of the crisis like do you think it's just a reaction to people suddenly feeling like they don't have access to the outside world or do you think it could actually sort of really change the the way in which we kind of relate to the environment around us i think there's a lot of really interesting things happening with this discussion around how important it is to access to have access to nature and obviously that's really fraught at the minute with the issue of parks and there's a petition on change.org to actually open up golf courses at this time for people to to be able to just be in and and enjoy in their kind of precious hour outside and that's really interesting in the way it feeds into kind of wider ongoing longer discussions about the right to roam and the ramblers have been doing this amazing project for for a while now logging all the footpaths so even around 
my house here, I, I've been finding all these new bridleways and footpaths and uh, green lanes that used to be roads that have kind of like grown over. So it's completely fine to walk down them, but they're not even on Google Maps. Like they don't exist on quite a lot of maps. So that kind of thing, like working out where we're allowed to be and kind of questioning questioning that's really interesting i think as well that's interesting is that because things like google maps are very much designed by well you know americans they're designed <laughs> ba- basically well, for, maybe that's part of the problem yes. yeah i mean I'm, I'm wondering if it's because they are designed by people living in places where the car is everything that does mean that maybe they just didn't think of this stuff like do you, is is it that simple with Google Maps, maybe, but the Ramblers thing is more to do with more traditional maps as well. And just the fact that so many of these kind of paths are just not you wouldn't know about them, which is crazy. So that's a really important thing. And then also with the with all the people kind of participating online as well. It's really interesting how that's being used by citizen scientists and things like the Earth Challenge air quality app and the Plastics Pollution app. And there's even an app, uh, there's even a project called Spotting Spider Monkeys, where you go online and you watch footage that's been taken by drones of spider monkeys in Central America. And then scientists are using that tagged information, which they need humans to do, to train algorithms to track and spot the monkeys independently so there's all kind of all just all the really interesting ways that maybe some of the engagement with nature that's happening right now might kind of up the kind of scientific links between what the public do and what scientists do and and how we can kind of protect it in a in a broader way as well amazing okay cool i mean so maybe maybe this horrible horrible crisis will 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 have some positive impacts somewhere down the road who knows i hope so (laughs) Just a couple of uh, quick-fire questions before we go that I'm asking, I'm asking everyone. What's your, what's your favourite city? I, wherever I end up going over the world, I keep coming back to London. It's just lovely. <laughs> oh, that's, OK. Cool. I, thought you, I thought you might say Hong Kong after your, your recent adventure, but no. <laughs> Hong Kong surprised me in all kinds of amazingly good ways. It is incredibly beautiful. It's, the nature in Hong Kong is probably second to none in the world. You... you you're in high-rise metropolis one minute and literally five minutes climb up a mountain and you're in the middle of like bushes and trees and looking out to see it and it is really really very special place and the people are absolutely amazing but London is I don't know something special okay cool and uh, last question what is your favorite thing or fact about the tube the mice I wrote about them once I think the new statesman they're just entertain me many a night when you're slightly coming home coming home late <laughs> so are the, are the mice who live on the tube have they evolved into a separate species or are they just like a bit a bit sooty basically scientifically have no idea i like to think in my head that you know they're kind of they're a gang they've got their tube mice thing going on there's someone who made like a, car, a kid's cartoon and about them and broadcast them on Sunday morning. <laughs> I'd watch that. A, a mockumentary or something. Yeah. Okay, well, oh. delighted to have you. You made a noise. Is there a horse or something? It's not a horse, but the one thing I did mean to mention and I forgot, which if you haven't done it yet, have you heard of something called Singing with Nightingales? I have not. Tell us about Singing with Nightingales. So that's honestly one of the most moving experiences I've had during the lockdown which is it's a project started a few years ago by a folk singer called Sam Lee and what normally happens and I did it last last year and wrote about it you go out into the kind of woods around London and southeast where the 
nightingales are and you go out at midnight and you sit in a group and you listen to them and Sam, Sam and guests sing and it's it's absolutely magic. And what they're doing at the moment right now is um, getting together a whole load of amazing artists and singers and musicians and they've been recording it live. They put together a whole big um, radio thing. It was broadcast on YouTube last last week, but they do check, do Google them and check it out because I think there's going to be more live broadcasts and more free. That, that one was free and I think other ones are going to be free and it's just eerily beautiful listening to the sound of the nightingales even when you're indoors it just you feel like you're in the mid especially if you turn off the lights I, I really recommend it okay well if you're feeling a bit trapped at the moment and you'd like to hear the sounds of nature then why not check out some nightingales india thank you very much bye of course neither city metric itself nor skylines would have lasted as long as they have or been as successful as they have without the support of our sponsors one organization in particular was a dream of a sort of commercial relationship in that Frankly, the kind of stuff they, they wanted to talk about was the sort of stuff we'd love to have been talking about anyway. So given all that, it didn't feel like I could do this last Skylines without hearing from one of our friends at the Centre for Cities. So my name's Paul Swinney and I'm Director of Policy and Research at the Think Tank Centre for Cities. And there was, a, there was about a year where you were on, I don't know if it was every episode, but it was most episodes of this thing. Like you were kind of a regular, in a, in a slot we, we rather grandly called Ask the Experts to kind of show off, make you guys feel good about yourselves really. But you came on and talked about all sorts of uh, exciting areas of cities and cities policy, didn't you? Well, that's me. You know, I've, I know everything about everything. So I was able to come on and talk about uh, a range of, of things. Yeah, we, we had lots of interesting discussions about all things city related and we were able to explore them. And indeed, that's my one of my favourite topics to, to speak about. So it was always great fun to come and do them. OK, so what, what did you enjoy talking about most? I think one of the things that's been most interesting from an intellectual perspective but also political perspective has been the whole debate around cities and towns that we seem to have been having for the last year and a half really and I think we spoke about it at least on one occasion and it was always good to, to sit down and, and chew those sorts of things over because let's say not only is it interesting from a from an economy perspective but clearly it took quite a, a large role in, in politics and quite a large role in the last election too. Yeah and the Brexit referendum it always felt to me like you know one of the big dividing lines one of the emerging fault lines in, in politics is kind of between the metropolitan areas and everything else and and the cities versus towns debate kind of fits into into that doesn't it yeah it sort of seemed to come out of that didn't it i mean the phrase left behind places came out as a result of the the brexit vote and then that morphed into the idea that left behind places are towns and i guess that's where the the disconnect starts to come to come about because when you look at the um, the data on this, what you tend to see is that a lot of towns actually do pretty well, particularly ones that are based in the in the great southeast of England, whereas a lot of what we would call a city, certainly places over over 100,000 people or 125,000 people. They, there's a lot of those places like, say, like Sunderland or Barnsley or even Sheffield that don't actually do particularly well. So the, this distinction that towns do badly, cities do well and cities have had it too good doesn't really hold up in the data. That even sort of becomes even more stark, I think, when you look at the performance, say, of, of Manchester or Birmingham or Glasgow as well, you know, three of our largest cities. Now, Manchester, I think, has done a fantastic job over the last 10 years of, of marketing itself. You know, it's definitely a city that is on the up. It's managed to, to turn around a, a ship that had been sinking for, for many, many decades, 
even earlier than places like Birmingham, etc. You know, and this sort of stretches back to before the Second World War, whereas a lot of cities start to struggle in the 70s and 80s. Um, but if you compare the performance of, say, Manchester and Birmingham to the comparators on the continent like Munich or Frankfurt or Marseille or, or these sorts of places, actually Birmingham, Manchester and, and Glasgow as well punch well below their weight. This idea that you know cities have had it too good and we've got to stop supporting cities' policy, I think is a little bit misguided. And really what we see, I think, from the work that we've done recently in particular is that if the government wants to level up the economy, which hopefully it will continue to want to, to do once it's dealt with sort of the short-term impact of corona, you know, we can't level up um, the UK economy without dealing with the ongoing challenges that our biggest cities face. You know, Improving the performance of, of Manchester would mean around about £15 billion uh, improvement in the national economy if we sort of see it to the levels where it should be at. That's a huge amount of money, and that's something that would affect a huge number of people too. You know, around about two and a half million people live within communal distance of Manchester. So there's an element here of not only are these places uh, underperforming, but the size of the prize is pretty big in mm. terms of trying to get them right. Yeah, it's always felt to me like whenever we talk about the productivity puzzle and why like Britain is underperforming in, in, in terms of its productivity compared to a lot of a lot of its European peers, a lot of that can kind of be explained by the underperformance of just three or four really big cities, right? Yeah, absolutely. What we see is, from a productivity perspective, is that while the UK economy doesn't do particularly well compared to European comparators, actually the great southeast of England is one of the most productive places in Europe. So you have this great contradiction where well, the UK economy is not doing very well, and yet one part of it is, you know, is one of the, the, the best parts of, of the continent. You know, that very much points then to the fact that it's the rest of the country that isn't doing very well. And as you say, John, when you then dig into the data, what you see is that the big driver of that is the underperformance of our biggest places. You know, and that's not just because they're doing they're not doing very well, but it's also they're, they're not doing very well and they're really big. So, you know, if you put those two things together, it means that you've got a, a pretty big problem for the national economy as a result. Yeah, I always thought this with regards to the Northern Powerhouse agenda when, when that was a thing. You know, it's probably given the complete lack of... of money that was ever put into it probably was just a cynical branding exercise but nonetheless i've always thought the theory behind it was pretty sound in that like if you government could find a way of sorting out that m62 corridor from liverpool through manchester leeds to hull you've kind of sorted out a big chunk of the of the economy right you brought you brought a lot of people up on, onto higher levels of productivity and therefore higher levels of wealth. So it's just like, if we could just crack that one problem, we solved a lot of national problems. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, it's interesting how I think even that plays out where, or what you get in the UK is, is a sort of a London v the rest attitude, um, where it's like, well, no, everything's biased towards London. Now, it may or may well not be, and that's a, a whole podcast on its, on its own. But I think once you get beyond that, it's, it, it's sort of, you know, everyone unites together and unifies around the idea that, you know, we all hate London. Isn't, isn't London horrible and it gets everything and it's not fair? But if you start to sort of explore that in terms of going, OK, well, London maybe does get too much. So let's give something to somewhere else. I then say, right, well, actually, we need to prioritise, however, in the north of England. And so we need to prioritise, say, around Manchester or around Leeds. All of a sudden, that uh, that coalition starts to fragment very quickly. And so, well, hang on, why is Manchester getting everything? And it sort of shifts from an anti-London thing to being like, well, why is Manchester getting everything all of the time? Which takes us back even to a, a cities v towns thing and what Manchester's had it too good. So it's it's quite interesting, I think, how, how the, 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 pol- the nub of the policy of the Northern Powerhouse was a very interesting one, but a very quickly, I think, diluted into a number of different things because it didn't please everybody and then ultimately just petered out 
I think that's a big lesson for, for say, the levelling up agenda or, or whatever direction we go in in the future in terms of trying to deal with you know, imbalances we see across the country. We're going to have to prioritise. That's going to upset some people. But if we want to see the northern economy do better than what it has done in the last 40 or 50 years, then that's the only way we can uh, sensibly go about doing it. Obviously, I'm absolutely delighted that uh, you've chosen to use your last appearance on this show to do two things. One of which is, is uh, a code of attack on the centre of towns, and the other of which is to tell the north of England to stop whining. Probably, though, be, be wrapping up. So there's a couple of uh, standard questions I'm going to ask everyone for this section. What's your favourite city? Well, before I answer that, I should say that uh, we should be supporting everywhere, but there's priorities to be put in place. That's not an attack on any individuals, and I definitely do not go out to do that. But um, that leads me nicely on to the question, actually, about my favourite city. And reflective of my accent, my favourite city is my home city of Sunderland. If you haven't been, you have to go, be it, go to the beach and take in our glorious beaches that and, and sands that uh, is the UK's best kept secret or go and uh, sample one of our delicious gastronomic, gastronomic delights, which would be our famous pink slice, which is a, a sweet treat that you absolutely have to try, or be even go to the Stadium of Light and watch a, a glorious football team perhaps play, uh, not always glorious football. You know, Sunderland has it all for uh, everybody, so that's definitely where it should be up on everyone's lists. You also had uh, some, some very colourful council leaders, such as uh, the, the late Paul Watson, who I, I believe stabbed someone. That's a thing about Sunderland too. Indeed, indeed. You know, every every place has got its uh, it's got its stories, and that is uh, certainly one of them. There's no sort of history board or anything on that, and it's not a, a fact that's necessarily celebrated. But it's it's interesting that um, even our political leaders sometimes have taken Lord their their own hands in the past. He was, uh, I believe, he was for clarity declared not guilty on that one. But again, there's, there's a whole story that sits behind that that maybe uh, Google can help with. No, I, I, I believe he, he. I don't think there was any argument over whether he stabbed someone. I think there was an argument over whether it was a crime. Um, but he, anyway, he's, 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 he's dead now, so thankfully British libel laws no longer apply. What's the most overrated city? For me, it's Paris. Now, there may be a number of people who could phone at their coffee as they hear me say that, but um, I went there a, a few years ago, despite being a bit of a Francophile, I hadn't actually been to Paris until fairly recently and was expecting great things and went there and saw the sights and thought, you know, isn't this, yes, isn't this all very pretty? But it was just a bit of a pin in the bum to walk around. It always felt that the, the pavements weren't particularly wide and it just didn't make it a particularly an enjoyable experience to to walk around. And I think probably the way that it's it's built too in terms of being very dense, which I think is a really good thing, but then combined with loads of traffic means that it's um, there's quite a lot of air pollution there as well. So I actually don't find it as a, as a pleasant place as, as, as you know, the, sort of the romantic vision sets out. I think contrast that to, say, Lyon in France, where it's the exact opposite and it's really easy to walk around. It's got a beautiful old town. It feels that um, Paris has a little bit too much of the, the limelight from the French perspective, in my view. Lyon's glorious, isn't it? I went last summer for the first time and it's not somewhere that anyone has ever suggested is, is worth visiting to me. But it's one of them. It's just an absolutely stunning city. And I'm kind of baffled that, that people don't talk about it more. Yeah, I totally agree. I think once people have ticked Sunderland off their bucket list, then they should definitely go to Lyon after. <laughs> OK, last, last question. Uh, a short answer, please. What's your favourite thing about the Tube? It gets me to work in relatively environmentally friendly fashion. I thought you were going to say something about functional economic geographies, but uh, Paul That's Swinney... That's very boring. <laughs> Paul Swinney, thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers, John. Hello, I'm Nick Hilton, and I have been producing Skylands for about the last 18 months to... About that? I don't know. 
Yeah, so like you're finally you're finally on this side of the microphone. This is very exciting for everyone. They're kind of hearing who's who, who's actually been sort of tidying all this stuff up. It's a real honour. Thank you for having me. And uh, how's? I mean, that's the obvious question. Like, uh, I'm I am not naturally technically minded. I am not I'm not someone who produces lovely polished audio tapes. What's it, what's it been like producing this nonsense? I think the biggest hurdle has always been the fact that Skylines is so mobile and you always seem to be in someone's office at the very best of times, if not on a on a tube with kind of the screaming roar of the northern line or out in a forest where, you know, I don't know, the sound of twittering birds and people dogging is the kind of the biggest issues. Well, we so, like both atmosphere and dogging, so yeah. <laughs> so it's just that kind of getting the audio quality acceptable. But I think Skyline's listeners, because, you know, for so many years you self-recorded and self-edited and self-produced, they've maybe adjusted their expectations. <laughs> so in that sense, it's been a it's been a pleasure because, you know, I could only improve it was my stance. You very much you very much have improved it as well. Yeah. And we really sort of it's been really nice having a proper producer who can tell me how to do stuff better and so on. Have there been any sort of episodes that you particularly enjoyed doing? Well, I, re- I remember bumping into you at a party and saying, oh, I actually really enjoyed the last episode of Skylands. And uh, I think you, you promoted that episode by being like, for the first time ever or something, my producer said he actually <laughs> likes an episode of Skylands. I like the episodes where you get out and about and, and you go for go for walks. I thought the one you did recently with Luke Turner in Epping Forest was really good. And I, and I would have liked to have seen, you know, maybe a discreet standalone series of John Ellidge goes on walks with various sort of journalistic and writery luminaries around their favourite haunts. And I, and I do think the, the sadly redundant mayoral series was kind of working in that sense would be good to have got a kind of technically kind of set you up with a, a better way of doing these walking talking ones than carrying your iphone but you know maybe that's something to think about in the future well who knows watch the space well thank you thank you very much for for cleaning up all my nonsense just want to sort of ask you the same questions i'm asking everyone else what's your favorite city very boring answer i really like london because i hugely value familiarity and not being you know afraid of the city and speaking the same language as all the people in who who will need to get me out of a fix so you know i like london okay it's a good answer are there any cities you think are particularly overrated by the world i mean the classic answer for this for me is new york which you know a lot of people think i must really like it because i spent a lot of time there but um i think it's absolutely it's filthy everything is really crap you know, you. I just the the whole ethos of in London. I like the fact that if someone holds the doors open on the tube to get in, everyone like looks at them like, "What are you doing? Are you crazy? You've ruined this whole journey for everyone." In New York, like people will applaud, or they will. There's such a, a culture of like <laughs> everything slowing down. The subway in New York is appalling, John, and I absolutely hate it. But yeah, just generally feeling like the air is thick with smog, and you know every surface is plastered with hundreds of years. People call it a sense of history. I call it dirt. I think we've missed an opportunity to do an episode. It's just you ranting about the New York subway here. But um, okay, that that brings us neatly to our last question, which is, you know, your favourite thing or fact about the tube. My favourite thing or fact about the tube. My favourite thing about the tube is not the tube. I'm going to use this opportunity to mount one last defence of the Thameslink, which since I moved to Loughborough Junction has been my kind of default way of getting into the city. And I love the Thameslink. And I think 
I, I'm privileged because I work predominantly from home that I don't often take it at Russia. But, you know, all of the tube is terrible at Russia. The Thameslink is gorgeous. The trains are fantastic. It's very and quick as well, isn't it? It's, it's quick. Like... What a great route. It only takes me to Blackfriars, which I regularly have to get to. So it serves my purposes very, very well and gets a terrible rap. I think I remember, I can't remember who it was at the New Statesman doing their Thameslink diary about how appalling. Um, oh, Indra. Yeah, uh, Indra warns our, our wonderful sub Oh, my blood. Because in my eight minutes from Loughborough Junction to Blackfriars on a Thameslink is some of some of my favourite eight minutes. And it always always breaks down for about five minutes just outside of Blackfriars Station. So you get a lovely look at the Thames and the new coffin-like skyscraper. So that that's my little tube, not tube fact. That's that's nice. We haven't really had much about the Thameslink on this show, so it's kind of nice. It's got a look in before before we wrapped up. Nick, thank you very much for making this listenable. Thank you, John. There are two more people we're going to hear from on this this ridiculously long final episode of Skylines. The second of them we will come to shortly. But the first of which is well, it's it's kind of me actually. I mean, apart from the fact I'm being quite self indulgent with this whole thing, let's be honest, it was kind of it's my show, it's my voice you've heard on pretty much every episode. So I'm going to be a little bit more self indulgent even than normal and just. I could have interviewed myself, but instead I, I have dragooned in my partner in lockdown and in life, Agnes Frimpton of the Chatham House podcast, Undercurrents. Hello. Hello. You're, you're going to interview me. I am. I'm excited. Is, this is very exciting for, for all concerned, but especially for you, I think. <laughs> as if I have any power in this situation. Yeah, as if you have any choice. <laughs> I should say we're doing this in my in my living room in East London, so occasionally there might be a rumbling noise as a train goes by, but we can't really we can't really do much about that, and it's it's on brand. So so deal with it. Absolutely. Okay, so should we crack on? Let's crack on. So I'm going to start by asking you some quick fire questions. I don't want long answers, John. We're going to get to long answers. Okay, I'm going to do so two. 2,000 word essays on each. Exactly. Right. So number one, what's your favourite city? Okay. So I've been thinking about this when I asked everyone else. I think the cities in the UK that I really like are the ones that just seem to have no awareness of London whatsoever and have a sort of energy all of their own. And that's Manchester and Glasgow and Newcastle, all of which are wonderful in different ways. Okay. What about your favourite city more globally? Oh, internationally. I really like Washington DC, which is a weird answer. Like Americans hate it, but it's a really nice city for walking around. And there's a lot of history. There's a lot of museums and stuff. It's quite sort of European. It's just, it's nice. Okay. It's very nice. Fine. We're not going to go into why, although I will ask you later. Most overrated city. I really don't like Leeds, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which actually was one of the first cities we talked about in this podcast with, with Tom Forth, a sort of Leeds native and professional Yorkshireman. And I just don't get it. I've been half a dozen times. I kind of can't see what's good about it, really. It's just a bit, it's just there. It's just there. <sighs> I went to university in Leeds, so I'm very angry about this. But more, in, okay, internationally, most overrated city. Ever, um, I've spoken to keep saying Paris because it's bullshit. Yeah, I don't know. I tend to, I tend to like cities. I like a lot of cities that people don't like. Brussels is is, is a city people don't like, and I like. You're whispering Prague at me, but <laughs> I think what's what's happening there is that you don't like Prague. No, you thought it was overrated too. That's what it's trying just, to give you ideas rather than just like no, I love it. Them just all. yeah, it, I, it it was fine. It was it was not massively exciting, but it was fine. I honestly can't think of a city I've been to internationally that I just really mm. actually no Montreal. I kind of dislike Montreal. Okay, all right, excellent. What's your favourite tube thing or fact? Probably the fact that at Whitechapel. The uh, underground is overground, and you go down some stairs to get to the overground, which is underground, which oh. is stupid, and I love it. Okay, what's your favourite type of transport? I mean, trains. Obviously, it's trains. Over by cycling? 
I mean, they they serve different purposes. I'm, I've been very much enjoying cycling recently because they've shut everything down, so all the streets are empty, and it's like cycling is a really nice, quick way of getting around the city if it weren't for all those bloody cars. So, where do you think the north actually starts? Actually, mm-hmm. Derbyshire, maybe around Nottingham. Actually, that kind of like the accent starts changing. People start sounding a bit bit northern there. So. Okay, I'm going to use this opportunity to ask you a few questions about city metric. Okay. Is that all right? That's fine. Then we're going to ask. I'm going to ask you some questions about skylines. Okay. And then the big ones. So, oh God. Um, what was the city metric article that did the best? Did the most traffic? Can you remember? I it would have been something really stupid that got loads and loads of traffic off Reddit, which is not necessarily actually an insight <laughs> into how good the article is. Yeah. In terms of ones that I, I was in any way proud of. That was um, going to be my next question. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll merge them. Yeah. One that did incredibly well was when I just like worked out where the names of all the counties in England came from. Right. And and wrote like 3,000 words on it, and that went around for ages. And I've no idea why people were as naughty about that as I am, but that did incredibly well. Mm-hmm. In terms of stuff written not by me, there was a piece by that guy Tom Fulfe I just mentioned, actually, about how he'd done some sort of number crunching and discovered that if you kind of look at the distance you can plausibly travel in 45 minutes, which is a reasonable commuting time, mm-hmm. then Birmingham is a lot smaller than we think it is at rush hour because the traffic is so bad and the buses go really slowly. And that was just sort of slightly mind-expanding, you know, wow, this is a whole new piece of information about how cities work kind of thing. So I was very pleased with that one. What was is always the most controversial topic? Probably, I don't know about always, but the housing ones... Mm-hmm just occasionally would really, really annoy people. Like if it starts going around a sort of local campaign group or something, there was one particular piece where I got very annoyed about the fact that there was a fight against planning permission to build housing on the site of a petrol station on the Isle of Dogs, just up the road in East London, which is an area full of tower blocks and skyscrapers already. And people got really, really angry with that. And someone sent me a picture of a very well-endowed naked man to communicate the fact I was a massive... So, so that was a little bit controversial. Oh, you finally know what it's like to be a lady on the internet. I do. It's like someone someone did send me a... Yeah, so that was lovely. Excellent. So, merging quickly onto Skylines, what was the interview that you think you're most proud of having published on Skylines? The interview I did with Vera's called Richard Florida was, was very good. I interviewed a guy called Ben Barber, before uh, the late great Ben Barber, before he died, about when mayor should rule the world, talking to some of those big thinkers was always nice. Also, there was a sort of unexpected one where I went up to see Andy Burnham's campaign launch to be mayor of Manchester in 2017. And uh, speaking to his press officer, because I've been tweeting snarkily from the back, as is my way. And she went, oh, yeah, Andy always says you never say anything nice about him. Do you want to meet him? And just thrust me in front of him. And I just recorded the interview on instincts. And actually, it made kind of a, a nice little podcast segment, which I wasn't expecting. So that was good. Is there somebody that you wish you'd been able to talk to, but, but didn't get to? Probably Sadiq Khan, the mm-hmm. actual, your actual mayor of London, in that like we were kind of edging towards that with the, the sort of Meryl Walk series and people on his team were quite keen for him to do it because they listen to the podcast or, you know, they, they're sort of aware it's a, a thing. And I think if it hadn't been for the pandemic and the end of civilization as we know it and the, the delay to that election, I think we probably would have got him. So I'm a bit sad we missed that one. Was there a niche interview or topic that you feel like didn't get enough pickup, but actually you you thought was a really great one that people should go back and listen to? Well, obviously, um, this is me playing for time out. Our episode on on Finland and Helsinki was uh, was a particular highlight. <laughs> 
I don't. I don't know. Um, you can tell listeners that he hasn't seen these questions before. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm totally blagging this. I don't know if there's like a particular sort of interview that I was like I would really have liked more more pick up on. I think the when the Conservative Party was picking its candidate to be mayor of London in the election that we've just not had, and I interviewed two of the three front runners, and not not the one who actually got it, and not annoyingly, but like those interviews, I was quite proud of, and sort of going through the nitty gritty of policy with people who'd like really thought about this quite hard, mm-hmm. and had a very different vision of the city to the people we tend to talk to on you know what's a bit of a left leaning podcast. I was quite pleased with them. Yeah. Why should we care about cities? So, like the sort of founding statement of City Metric was that in. 2008, it's believed for the first time a majority of humanity was urban. And, you know, that'll now be about probably 55, 56% of the world's population are living in, in cities. And you can get into arguments about definitions and so on. But, you know, most people on the face of the earth now live in some form of urban area. And that means that most of the problems we face as a species are also soluble if we can just work out how to make cities work better, like if we can work out how to get transport emissions down in cities, if we can work out how to get the circular economy going in cities, all this kind of stuff, then you've dealt with a lot of the world's problems in one fell swoop and at a level that national governments don't necessarily need to be that involved in. So so that's kind of my, my take, I think. Do you think the pandemic is going to fundamentally change the way that we live in cities globally as well? There are signs it is changing our approach to the car in cities in that, like, one of the commonalities you're seeing with the approach of a lot of cities around the world to the pandemic is they are trying to take space back from from motorised vehicles and give it to pedestrians and cyclists and so on. And a lot of the cities I've been to that have really kind of bowled over of how great they are, the often Spanish ones actually, where they do have these big pedestrianised areas or places where you can drive a van if you need to make a delivery or something, but it's very clear you're in someone else's space. I think if we could kind of move things in that direction, we would just have nicer places to live. Even just, you know, the bollards that go up and down that you see far, far more commonly in European cities than you do here. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be an either-or thing. There are ways of ensuring that people who really do need to get a car into a particular space because, you know, they're they're disabled in a wheelchair or, or, you know, they're making a delivery or whatever. It is possible to do that, but in a way that still makes it clear this this is a space for people scale rather than car scale. This is a really difficult question to answer. I oh, know, good. So I apologise. But since you started City Metric and since you started Skylines, do you think that there has been an increased focus by whether it's regional or local government or national government on infrastructure, on transport, on housing? It's difficult to answer because it might just be that you're increasingly in that world and therefore see more of it. Yeah. But do you think the general public has become more aware of this? these sort of questions? Do you think it's gone higher up the policy scale? So two things, really. I mean, specifically in the UK, the, the or specifically in England, really, the devolution debate about how we need to be sort of empowering places to kind of take control of their own destiny again, that has gone up the agenda. Like, it's kind of moved up and down depending on who's actually running the show in Westminster. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly true we talk more about the fact that we need local government to, to play an active role rather than just be a sort of, you know, service delivery arm of, of, of national government than we used to, I think. More broadly, though, I kind of think there has been a sort of moment of which city metric was part of, like, suddenly people were talking about cities as a discipline or urbanism as a discipline for all the reasons that we've kind of already covered. And there was a period a few years ago where there were loads of sites covering this stuff. There was City Lab over in the States, there was Guardian Cities, there's Planet Zen. All these other places were kind of looking at the idea of cities. Some of them have, have fallen away now, sadly. 
but certainly I think there are people who who think about cities and infrastructure and the kind of interconnected nature of like housing and transport policies and all this stuff in a way they didn't before and I think that's partly because there was this period where there was there was a media covering that of which we were a part. And obviously City Metric is continuing in a new and exciting form but this is the end of Skylines. It is. Who do you think are the organisations or who do you think are other places that are doing sort of similar-ish things to what you've done here that people should watch out for? There are a lot of think tanks, I think, doing interesting things in this area. There's our friends at the Centre for Cities who've been great supporters of ours down the years and do huge amounts of fantastic research on this stuff. There's also their sort of upstart rival, the Centre for Towns, which is looking at slightly smaller places, though the two do tend to have a bit of a turf war over what counts as a city, what counts as a town. There's the UN Habitat Programme has been sort of doing stuff around this for years and like some, they've been a bit quiet lately, but they've done some fantastic research in the past. It's an area that people do think about now in a way I don't think they did 10, 15 years ago. Skylines can take full credit for that, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it's just me. Um, it's just me, really. <laughs> so, what are you going to do next, John Elledge? I don't know, once we're done with this, I thought I might have, <laughs> might have a drink and a sit, to be honest. I've, like, I've been on a nice long bike ride and I'm in a column today. So I'm still, I am still around at City Metric. I'm still, I'm just a correspondent now, but I'm, I'm doing a shift on the blog in the morning, writing some stuff and still kind of covering the sort of London and UK beat. I'm still writing a column for the New Statesman and I'm writing a book, which I am being a little bit mysterious about because I haven't quite worked out the elevator pitch yet. And I'm hoping that my publisher will do that for me and then I can just kind of like let them announce it and then share it. <laughs> but there, is there a vague timeline when that might be out? That's meant to be out in August 2021. Excellent. Well which, is, which is a bit of a worry because I've, I've got to send over the, the full copy in, in early September and I've so far written about a third of it. So that's, that's big and scary. But on the upside, I can't really go out and have fun at the moment. So no, That's true. Okay, so most self-indulgent question. What do you think Skylines and City Metro did that nobody else was doing? Okay, this is incredibly self-indulgent. I think we made nerdy stuff fun. I think a lot of the sites, a lot of the titles out there that are covering this stuff tend to be quite straight-laced and serious. And I think what we managed to do quite successfully, I hope, is just kind of like basically get jokes in, make it sort of interesting to read about nerdy stuff like, you know, where all the county names came from or like the history of London's rail terminals or whatever. So it wasn't just like... I, I have this this sort of voice in my mind of like, you know, there's a, there's a cliche train spotter. It's a bit nasal, you know, with a sort of, you know, flask of weak lemon drink, that kind of thing. Don't knock your major. Uh, oh, I can now because it's like, yeah, because it's ending. <laughs> so like, screw you guys. But yeah, I always wanted to push back against that and be like, uh, yeah, just kind of make it sort of something that people would, would want to read. People who are a little bit nerdy, but maybe not like, you know, overwhelmingly nerdy. Like my favourite comment I ever got on any City Metric story is when someone shared it on Twitter with, I was much more interested in this than I'm entirely comfortable <laughs> with. But yes, that's the vibe I'm going for. And do you think City Metric and Skylines was that the same or do you think there was a nuance difference? I think they were fairly, fairly similar. I mean, I, I always tried to kind of keep the same sort of mix on both. Of like, So on the podcast, there have been weeks where it's been, you know, quite slightly technical interviews about local government finance or, or, you know, the ancient history or whatever it is. But then sometimes it would just be like me and Stephen Bush having an argument about the tube mm. or, or like me and Stephanie swapping stories about uh, you know, embarrassing things that happened to us interrailing. And, it, and I always kind of wanted to get both of those kind of vibes in there. Mm -hmm. And will you miss it? I will. I'll miss mm -hmm. it.
But I'm also, I'm not like devastated it's coming to an end. I think it's like, you know, there's 150 episodes. That's a far longer run than we had any right to expect. And it's time for new things. So here we go. Are there people that you think your listeners should watch out for? Uh, sorry, in a good way. <laughs> not as in like they're coming around to mug you. But yeah, who are the people in this sort of field that you think are ones to watch? You know, is it mayoral candidates? Is it journalists? Or is it? other than you. Well, this is actually a, a really great point to hand over to our last interview, which is with, well, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Summer Mathis, and I'm the new editor of CityMetric. Well, that's very exciting, isn't it? A new editor. Yeah, and you've got a, you, you've got a great CV working on related sites. You were previously at Atlas Obscura, and before that you were at CityLab, so you've kind of done the whole sort of, uh, you've run the whole urbanism gamut, really, haven't you? A, a bit, yeah. And before that, I did local news in Washington, D.C., which is actually how I kind of got first interested in a lot of the issues that sites like CityLab and CityMetric cover. So that was going to be my next question is, you know, what, what was it that kind of drew you to, to urbanism and cities as, as an idea that you wanted to, to write about? Yeah, well, a lot of it did have to do with that time I spent covering the District of Columbia. I lived in Washington, D.C. for about 12 years, although I live in, in Brooklyn now. I'm one of those odd Washington journalists who never covered Congress or the White House or national politics. I was always covering the city. And that led me down a lot of different paths. I got very interested in issues around gentrification, real estate development, transportation, affordable housing by covering neighborhoods very closely for a number of years. And I think the other part of it is that I actually grew up in the, in the southwestern part of the United States, uh, mostly in southern Arizona, um, but I lived in California for a while as well. And I think it took me moving to D.C., to even experience for the first time in my life living someplace that was really walkable. And it changed my life. I, I got rid of my car and I started to understand that there were different ways of designing cities by actually moving to a city where I could live my life in a, in a different sort of way than I ever had before. I have to say, D.C. is probably my favorite American city. Precisely. Is it really? I love that. I'm a huge D.C. booster. I don't live there now, but it's it's as far as a place to live. It's probably one of my one of my favorites as well. It it gets conflated a lot with Washington, right, with sort of the the Mm. national political infrastructure of the United States. But the city itself is is really a wonderful place to live. And it's full of all kinds of different people doing all kinds of things that don't have anything to do with politics. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that unless they've actually spent some time there. As you say, it's an incredibly walkable city. It's somewhere that you can just kind of like wander around on foot and, and discover things by serendipity in a way you can't with those sort of bigger scale cities where you need a car to get everywhere, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like the scale of DC quite a lot because as you say, you know, the, it, it's, a very, it's a city that is very much made up of neighborhoods that feel like they each have their own identity. And it's quite manageable as, as sort of the size of the city itself. It's not, it's not quite as huge as some of the other big cities in the U.S. And, um, and so that, that kind of density and, and how easy it is to get around and how many different options you have to get around in, in D.C. Is, is something I really love about it, too. So urbanism is, you know, it's a big, it's a big concept. It's a big idea. And almost any form of human life kind of happens somewhere in the city. So, so you can kind of to an extent, make what you want of it. I mean, what, what are the sort of bits of, of urbanism that you're particularly interested in and pursuing? 
Yeah. Well, there's so many, right? I mean, I think one of the reasons I never get bored of covering cities and, you know, how cities are changing is because they're constantly changing. But also so many of the topics that, that you know, people like you and me um, are interested in writing about, are interested in telling stories about, are all interconnected. Right. So, you know, you start to understand when you look at these issues really closely for years, just how much you can't divorce how we talk about transportation from how we talk about affordable housing. Those two things are they go hand in hand. And so when you when you start to kind of unpack the layers of how cities work for people and how they affect their daily lives, you really start to see how how complex and how important it is not to leave out. You can't really just look at certain topics all on their own. And I think that's what what really draws me to it as a journalist and as a storyteller. I also just love cities. I'm, I'm a city person and, um, and I care about them. And I think the people who live in them almost always feel the same way. They, they want their cities to be great places to live. So from that perspective, you know, everything that we, that we cover at a site like CityMetric are, are really deeply relatable for everybody. So obviously we're in quite a specific, a strange time at the moment, not, not just yes. us, but you know, everyone on, on planet Earth. But you know, how is CityMetric kind of addressing the coronavirus crisis? Right. Well, as you know, John, we've um, we've launched a, a separate blog that we've added to the site in the last few weeks to cover more up to the minute updates on the pandemic. And, you know, it's, it's clear to me that this is really going to be the major story for cities for some time. So we are devoting more resources to covering the story now. Um, and we will continue to do so. We're also starting to think about um, how we can help people in cities all over the world, you know, kind of keep track of what ideas are working and, and what ideas are not working. We all know that cities are constantly looking to each other to borrow ideas, to learn from one another. So we want to make sure that we're really looking closely, not just um, in some parts of the world, but all over the world for clues as to, you know, how, how cities can most effectively recover from the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, something I've been quite almost excited about with the crisis, which is a horrible thing to say, but there we are, it's just wrong, <laughs> is that it has sort of unlocked a lot of stuff around making London more walkable. So yeah. Coming possible to reallocate space from cars to pedestrians or cyclists. And that feels like that is, that's not just a London phenomenon, that is happening in, in cities across the world. It, it absolutely is. And I, and I am well aware that, you know, I think there was some frustration in London in particular for quite some time about, you know, whether London was going to pursue opening up streets or adding more temporary cycle lanes. But now it seems like there is a plan to do that. And, and that's very heartening to see. But yeah, it's happening in so many cities. I mean, just the other day, I know Seattle um, here in the U.S., you know, they went ahead and committed to keeping some of their newly opened streets permanently. So that's the kind of major change, major shift in how cities think about how to allocate space, what's possible and how nimble they can be that we want to be paying attention to and really telling the stories of, of how that's playing out all over the world. Yeah, it does sort of feel like it's, it's unlocked the ability to make some of the changes that people in, in the urbanist community and city governments have kind of wanted to push towards anyway. So it could, Yes, it could, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's awful that it took a, a, yes. such a devastating pandemic for some of these issues to be taken more seriously. But you're right. Um, it, it may be that this is a moment where, where many kind of wish lists of some of the most passionate urbanists out there will, you know, potentially be addressed. 
I mean, we hope that the crisis is, is not going to go on forever. There presumably will be a life afterwards at some point. I mean, what kind of things do you want to do with, with City Metric once you kind of you have a more uh, a freer hand to do that, really? Right. Well, there, there will definitely be some changes at City Metric. So for, for readers of the site, I can tell you a few things now. I mean, John, you know better than anybody that, you know, the, the site hasn't really had a, a redesign in quite some time. No, um, <laughs> never, really. Never, never, long. right? Yeah. It's been some years. And normally, you know, you want to roll out a, a kind of fresh look to a website every, you know, two to three years minimum. So it's obviously overdue. So first things first, we will be redesigning the site. We'll be kind of, we'll be relaunching it later this year. So I'm excited to get some update, an updated look and feel and some better presentations for our work. But beyond that, in terms of, you know, how the coverage might change, I mean, I think there's a few things that will happen gradually, but then once we launch the redesigned site, we'll, we'll, we'll really be more apparent to readers. So one is, you know, probably speaks to the fact that like, who is this American woman and why is she, why is she taking over city metric? We do plan to expand the coverage of the site quite a bit. I want to start to speak to a more global audience. So we'll be, we'll be very interested in stories from all over the world and we'll be speaking to readers from all over the world. That's one big shift. And then another is that we are building up a team um, to do original reporting and particularly an emphasis on data journalism. We have a, a pretty big ambitions toward doing quite a lot more original data work and analysis that we think will be really fascinating uh, for our readers. So that's another, another shift uh, that readers can expect to see on the site in the coming months. Okay, fantastic. It all sounds incredibly exciting. And there's like so many, so many things you're going to be doing that I would like the redesign alone things I would love to have been able to do years ago. Um, and finally, you're, you're getting the chance. You have you're a great team you're building with uh, Adam Sneed in Washington. I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Jake Blumenthal? Um, Jake, Jake Blumgart. Yeah, Blumgart. Jake Blumgart's based in, 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 in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And then we recently also just added Alexandra Kanick, who's based in the Seattle area in Washington State. We will be adding some more stuff down the road as well. But yeah, you know, obviously I'm so, so grateful that you're still with us as well and that you're, you're sticking around as a contributor because I, I'm very much looking forward to continuing to have your voice on the site as well. Well, that's very, it's very kind. It's, it's kind of good to sort of be here through the transition and kind of like see, see City Metric on the next stage. So thank you for, for letting me stick around for a bit and see what happens. And thank you also for, for appearing on the last episode of Skylight. Really great oh, it's it's my total pleasure, and I hope that um, all of your all of the listeners of Skylines will stick around and um, come along for the ride with us as we uh, as we make some changes to City Metric. Summer, thank you very much. Thank you, John. And that is very nearly your lot. Just a couple of things first. One of which is a bit of bit of housekeeping for the last time. This is the end of Skylines, but it's not it's not the end of me. Thankfully, I'm old. I'm not that old. I am probably going to do another podcast and and some of the ideas I'm knocking around at the moment are quite skylinesy. They will cover some of the same ground. So if that sounds like the sort of thing you'd be interested in, obviously I'd love to uh, come along for the journey. I don't yet have a sign up link for you to, to go to because I don't have a podcast yet, but I do have a tiny letter I've set up so, so you can join my emergency mailing list where I will spam you about the new podcast as and when it happens. And that's just tinyletter.com slash John Elledge, which as you probably know is spelled J-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-D-G-E. So tinyletter.com slash John Elledge. Sign up there and when the new project happens, I will tell you all about it. 
the other thing I wanted to do before we, we finish was um, I thought it would be nice to hear from some listeners. So here they are. Please mind the Hi, my name's Nick. I'm in Newport in South Wales. I just wanted to say that I'm a massive fan of City Metric Skylines podcast. It was the first podcast that I regularly subscribed to. And over the years, really enjoyed the way that John has brought insight into both cities in the UK and from around the world, looking at innovations, looking at new ideas, and all with a great sense of humour along the way. Skylines will be really missed. All the best to you, John, with whatever you go on to do next. What I liked about Skylines was that it wasn't just about subjects that I liked particularly, but it also allowed me to feel like I was getting to know other people and seeing how places that we live in and the issues of these places that we live in affected them in particular, which is very nice. It's very important to have that human connection. Also, like, the host let me dunk on him all the time, so that was a bonus really great lineup lovely kind of conversation atmosphere between john and his guests and or our previous co-hosts like stephanie and jim watterson even like you know agnes last night which was really lovely you know also john it's nice listening to podcasts where the host actually knows what they're talking about and it manages to create that interest in topics which generally to me were quite neat uh, i'm not really someone too interested or wasn't too interested, interested and transport policy or the different tube networks or how councils are run. But yeah, the last three or four years, I've now found myself looking up articles based on what tube network is named for this reason or whatever. It's sad to see it go. I have to find something else to struggle to listen to on my commute into work. Best luck in the future. Cheers. See ya. I've been listening to Skylines for kind of what seems like forever, really. As a podcast, I'd give it four out of five. It's good content if you like trains, houses and local government. Incidentally, I do find these things quite enjoyable. However, what no one warned me about is it's a really bad idea to listen to this podcast when running. So if you want to go for a jog, choose a different podcast. Save Skylines for train journeys. Hi, um, my name's Miriam Merwich. It's been an absolute joy listening to Skylines over the past few years, especially on long walks. And I'm definitely going to miss it lots and learning awful lot from it every single week. A massive thank you to John and everyone involved as well. And I can't wait to see everything that comes next for everyone involved. I must listen from probably episode 10. Skylines has been an enduring favourite of my podcasts. So thank you, John. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Royfield. Thank you, everyone else who's been involved. But most of all, thank you to the New Statesman for letting White Man release a podcast about infrastructure, cities, and whether or not Pret is the posh version of Greg's. You know, some of those did actually genuinely make me feel a little bit almost teary. Yeah, it's nice. It's been nice doing this podcast for you guys. It's been nice having an audience and knowing that people are enthusiastic about all this. And it's been really lovely and I will miss doing it. I will miss you guys. But times change and so must I. There might be one last thing after the credits if you keep listening. But for the most part, that was Skylines, the Cinemetric podcast. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to Skylines, the Cinemetric podcast. It was presented by me, John Elledge, along with, at various times, Barbara Speed and Stephanie Boland. 
It was produced by Royfield Brown and Nick Hilton. Nick is the one who did all the hard work on this episode, so I should probably make that clear at this point. You also, on this episode, heard the voices of Patrick McGuire, Jim Waterson, Stephen Bush, India Bork, Paul Swinney, Summer Mathis, and Agnes Frimston. And we'd like to thank all of them for their help. Our theme music was licensed under Creative Commons. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Hello and welcome to the City Metric Podcast. I'm Stephanie. No, you don't. Hi, we're the, we're the hosts. Is that what I'm saying? Yeah, you say hi. You say hey, I'm Stephanie. Right. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John, and we host Skylines, a City Metric Podcast, which you really all be listening to. And you can tune in and hear us talking about cities, maps. I love that. Yeah. Let's hear it. Yeah. Sorry, let's start if the I, if, I do, if I do that bit and then you go in recent weeks, we've talked Yeah, about okay, it, great. Because okay. that, that kind of feels... Yeah. That, mean, that way I'm doing this sort of brand yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John, and we host Skylines, the City Metric podcast. In recent weeks, we've talked about maps, cities, and the experience of being in public space. We've had guests including... Uh, we've talked about whether the Olympics is any good for cities. We've talked about why women... Oh, f- no, that's to... perfect. Go, go, go. We've talked about whether the Olympics is good for cities, about... No, let's let's go from the top. Sorry, okay. Explain. But like, I was. Well, I, yeah. I'm, I'm explaining badly. I think also, and, and also, I stopped, and I should have gone on. Like, you know, we host guidelines, blah blah. Yeah. blah every week we talk about. Yeah. That okay. Yeah. And yeah. then you can say in recent weeks we've talked about. And had you know, guests like. Yeah, and, yeah. 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 Okay. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, the City Metric podcast, where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps and the human world. In recent weeks, we've talked about whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado-Perez. And Neil Codlin, the key player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.